Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. Hello, hello, everyone. This is part two of the audiobook, me reading my own book, Everything You Should Know About Healthy Blood Sugar, Simple Strategies to Conquer Almost Any Health Problem. Of course, if you have not listened to part one, you should definitely do that. You can get this book on Amazon, and you can see this and all of my other books on my website, notusbooks.org. And in the audiobook section, you can also see the free audio and video versions of all of my books, including this one. It is on YouTube where I read the book to you, and you can see the words on the screen. So you can find everything that I do, all the social media channels, hundreds of book reviews, most of them are about health, and an archive of this podcast, including episodes that are not posted to podcast here. Secret episodes. You can see all of that on notusbooks.org. Links are in the description, of course. And I hope you enjoy the book. Thank you. Eating seafood is still not enough to get adequate minerals. As mentioned, natural seaside people also use sea material as fuel for cooking and heating fires, and this additional source of concentrated plant-derived mineral ash is crucial to their nutrition. And of course, they boil and grind the bones of those creatures and compost diligently with the leftovers of both the ash and bones, as well as shells. Minerals are used in both the structure and function of our bodies, meaning we are made partly of minerals, and minerals are used as reactive agents or cofactors for the daily operations of our bodies. Enzymes are cofactors for the digestion of food material, and minerals and vitamins can be cofactors for a huge list of functions in the body, including those enzymatic reactions. This is a good time to bring obesity into the conversation. Obesity is correlated with blood sugar problems, but not always. Skinny people can have diabetes and behavioral problems and so on. So what is the real connection? The real connection is mineral deficiency. At its core, type 2 diabetes is a mineral deficiency. As mentioned, there are two key minerals involved and they have at least 23 direct nutrient cofactors in the metabolization of sugars. Those nutrients are needed for insulin to get glucose into the cell and burn it. 
Many of the essential minerals, especially the trace minerals like chromium and vanadium, are catastrophically deficient in our foods, and it is highly unlikely that you are missing only the ones specifically required for sugar and insulin metabolism. Though the type 1 defect is about missing insulin rather than insulin resistance, the defect itself will have been caused by nutrient deficiencies, including trace minerals. Obesity is also caused by mineral deficiency, except that it could be practically any of the minerals that are missing. All mineral deficiencies will produce a craving, because the body is smart and it is telling you to feed it. In the modern world, we make the mistake of feeding our bodies food, without also giving it adequate micronutrients, especially minerals. When animals are low on minerals, they will chew non-food things, such as wood, leather, horns, bones, and practically anything else that might contain some minerals. In animals, this behavior is called cribbing, and it is a symptom of a problem called pica. We call this problem the munchies in humans, and it is not recognized as a nutritional problem. It is simply recognized as hunger. Pica is stopped in animals by giving them more minerals in the form of bone meal and or a trace mineral salt block. The behavior stops within days. Humans have been told that obesity is a disease, yet it is merely a symptom of the real problem, which is mineral deficiency. Notice how in animals the behavior itself, cribbing, is not considered the problem. It is recognized as a symptom of the problem of pica. If the cribbing person chooses not to eat things that contain calories, such as clay or kitty litter or paint chips or light bulbs, then they will not gain weight. If the cribbing person chooses practically any food to nibble on, they will invariably gain weight. In simple English, they will remain hungry and they will continue to eat. This is because the food itself is still largely devoid of minerals, and the food itself requires even more nutrients to digest, therefore further exacerbating the nutrient deficiency. Many nutrients are required for a healthy metabolism, and it is simply a fool's errand to expect to find them in food. Those primitive people that do the irrigation and wood ash thing, they don't have blood sugar problems on their list of concerns. They expect to die in their sleep in very old age not battle with diabetes or cancer, or become debilitated from arthritis. They don't have those chronic and degenerative problems because they get plenty of micronutrients in their food. It's not because of the food that they're healthy, but because they put those nutrients in there. That's why we don't really have a recommended food list. We have an avoid list, because those foods screw up the body, but you can get macronutrients from a huge variety of foods. Protein itself, in the general sense, is essential. But what is really essential are 12 of the amino acids that make up proteins. The other amino acids used in our body can be made by the body itself, but these 12 we must get from food. And if we are lacking any of them, we get a group of symptoms called a disease, named after that deficiency. We require amino acids, but they can come from a variety of proteins, which can come from a variety of foods. We recommend consuming a lot of cholesterol, especially if you are trying to repair something fatty like a brain or nervous system or hormone system. We recommend cholesterol, but you don't have to eat any one specific source of it. In a chapter about food, we have mostly talked about nutrients, and that is because nutrients are the important parts of foods. The only things you really need to understand about foods are which ones mess us up and that no diet can give us all our nutrients. If we provide ourselves with all of the essential nutrients in supplement form, then any nutrients that are in foods are a bonus. 
it would be irresponsible to recommend you a list of foods to try to add up the nutrients. Not only would this be expensive and impractical, but also physically impossible to guarantee that all the minerals are in the food. As mentioned in the digestive chapter, eating too much food in general is a big problem in our society, as too much food can cause a digestive problem. I see so many people trying to eat healthy and get all the nutrients and foods, and they end up with an enormous shopping list and a good portion of their day dedicated to attempting to eat it all. If you rummage around the internet or health conventions or markets, you will accumulate a staggering list of foods and herbs and roots and so on that are said to help with blood sugar. All of the people promoting foods or medicines alone are missing the point that insulin metabolism requires minerals. It doesn't require broccoli or cinnamon, even though those things are good and can help. They don't fix the problem because diabetes isn't caused by a cinnamon deficiency. The point here is that you can almost eat whatever foods you like, as long as they are not on our list of bad foods. Your portions are reasonable, your excess sugar is minimized, and your micronutrients are being consumed. Getting back to obesity, it does not really matter to us what diet they choose as long as they avoid the bad foods, especially gluten. We fatten up livestock with grains, and humans who eat carbs and sugars in large amounts will also tend to gain weight quite easily. If you eat enough of any food with any calories, it can cause weight gain. An all-meat and dairy diet may not have carbohydrates, but eat enough of it and you will still most likely gain weight. In this explanation, obesity is not caused by eating too much and a lack of exercise. Eating too much is a symptom of hunger, which is a symptom of mineral deficiency. The mainstream medical world comes out every year now with new studies showing that exercise tends not to do anything to help people lose weight. Yet the standard advice from the average doctor is still to exercise more and eat less. All the time we encounter severely overweight people who have starved themselves for extended periods of time and yet failed to lose any appreciable weight. This is because it is not a simple 1 plus 1 equation that more food equals more weight and less food equals less weight. Someone with a healthy metabolism can eat more food than the doctor would recommend, and yet not gain any weight. I am one of them. My wife tries to fatten me up with double the amount of food that I would normally consume on my own, and it does nothing. Since our menu does not include gluten, there is nothing to inflame my intestines and cause malabsorption of the nutrients I require for a healthy metabolism. Someone eating gluten and experiencing malabsorption can also fail to gain any weight. They can come to us asking how to gain weight. The answer is the same for the underweight and the overweight. Supplementing with all 90 essential nutrients is the key here, though it is the key that many people simply don't want to accept. They want to believe that if they restrict themselves to salads under 1,000 calories a day that they will lose the weight, but now you know that this isn't a guarantee. Salads don't have a lot of minerals in them. If exercise and controlled eating were the cure for obesity, I'm sure that we would not have over 50% of the American population overweight. I will cover this concept more thoroughly in the chapter on fatty nutrients. But for now you must simply understand that eating is the symptom of the problem, not the problem itself. The reason that obesity is in our blood sugar category of disease is because of the handful of micronutrients that are needed specifically to utilize insulin and metabolize sugar and carbs. Since the body takes all macronutrients and turns them into glucose to feed cells, a fundamental problem is created when we lack the nutrients required to utilize this sugar. With such a fundamental metabolic problem, obesity is one possible consequence. 
in severe mineral deficiency, it will not matter how much the person exercises or how little they eat. They need to give their body what it needs to run its metabolism. This means that you do not have to eat any sugar for there to be a blood sugar problem. You cannot escape sugar in the body, as the body will make it from anything. Diabetics are always told to restrict or eliminate sugar, and yet they still have diabetes, because sugar does not cause diabetes. A lack of nutrients that metabolize sugar causes type 2 diabetes. The average person wouldn't know that we humans eliminated diabetes over 60 years ago and practically every other health problem you can name in livestock, pet, and zoo animals. We didn't do this with pharmaceutical drugs or fad diets. We did it by adding sufficient micronutrients to animal feeds, including the specific trace minerals required for insulin metabolism and healthy blood sugar. Check out some labels on dog or cat food, and you will see that it has a wider variety and more robust quantity of nutrients than formulas made for human children or pregnant women. Cheap cat food probably has a lot more chromium in it than high-end baby food. We give more nutrients to our pets than we do to our babies, and as a result, our animals should not have a blood sugar problem, as long as they eat the food formulated for them. Well, on the other hand, it is now normal for human children to have blood sugar problems. The same people who make healthy, organic, handmade food for their families tend to do the same for their pets, and those pets will very likely develop the exact same health problems as the humans who feed them. The balance between the macro and micronutrients is basically perfect in dog food, or rat pellets, or reptile powders, and this balance is thrown off when we give these animals regular human food. Human food is deficient in micronutrients. Micronutrients are needed to metabolize macronutrients. The more macronutrients we eat, the more micronutrients we need. Sugar is one of those macronutrients, and this is why sugar is not the problem itself. Sugar is an essential nutrient, in the sense that your body will do everything it can do to produce sugar to feed the cells. If your cells do not have glucose to eat, they die. If your body cannot metabolize sugar, there will be numerous problems, which is why there are so many different symptoms and diseases in the blood sugar category, from mood problems to gangrene. This is why you do not need to avoid rice or fruits, and you actually don't need to live without treats either. We make a lot of videos about cooking and baking without the bad foods, and sometimes people are surprised that we include so many sugary treats. We do this because it is not necessary to completely avoid treats. You can put some effort in and make your favorite treat without gluten or oil, whether it is pizza or pancakes or pretzels. But the intention is not to do this every day. Most of us eat pretty repetitively. Treats are a great way to break up the monotony of efficient eating. You just need to understand that the more sugar you eat, the more nutrients you need to process it. And it is impossible to get these nutrients from food alone. Quitting sugar alone will not give you the missing nutrients but it will lessen the existing challenge the body is facing. We do sell supplements intended to fill in the gaps, and that information is in the back of the book. But I'm also attempting to give you all of the information you need to make smart food choices first. Quantity is the main problem here. There are many estimates of how much sugar we eat now, compared to 100 or 200 years ago. Everyone seems to calculate it differently, and so I've decided not to pin down a number. In any case, we get more sugar than we used to, and we consume less micronutrients than we used to. This is a problem in both directions. Lower your overall sugar intake, particularly processed sugar, and increase your micronutrients as a general rule of thumb.
Like modern processed grains, processed sugar has the same basic problems. Natural sources of sugar, such as honey or syrup, or even milled beets or dates, have plenty of other nutrients in them to balance the sugar. And of course, sugar cane and corn and most other common modern sugar sources are planted from seeds each year with small root systems that are usually trenched in pesticides. So even though the primary problem with sugar is the quantities we currently consume, sources like honey, syrup, dates, or coconuts, grown on an old tree with long roots, are much healthier choices. People always ask me if it is okay to replace the packaged sugar in their morning coffee or tea with something more natural like maple or agave syrup or honey. I always return to the quantity problem. I don't really care what type of sugar it is. The important part is that we are eating too much sugar in general and are nutrient deficient in general. I'm from Canada, and maple syrup is basically our national dish. It might as well be on the flag. I love maple syrup, but I do not consume it every day. If I choose to make some gluten-free cookies or something, I will increase my micronutrients that day. If you did nothing else but eliminate problematic grains and lowered your sugar intake, then I expect you will see a positive result with your blood sugar. But I am morally obligated to briefly explain the other bad foods on our list, for it would be silly for you to get your blood sugar under control, only to die of some other food problem that I could have told you about. I have already mentioned a connection between blood sugar and blood cholesterol. The full explanation is quite complicated, but it is worth understanding the overview. Every cell in your body has a membrane. This membrane is semi-permeable, which means that it lets some things in and prevents other things from getting in. This semi-permeability requires intelligence. It was long thought that the nucleus of the cell was the brain of the cell, but it has been shown that the nucleus can be removed entirely and the cell can still function. This is not true with the membrane. The membrane seems to be the brain of the cell, the part which takes information from the environment outside of the cell and uses that information to regulate what happens inside of the cell. We might as well call it the membrane, spelled B-R-A-I-N. Cholesterol is about 30% of the cell membrane. There is an established connection between diabetes and a hardening of the cell membrane, though there is wide disagreement on exactly why this happens. For our purposes, we must simply understand the connection. When a blood sugar problem is present, the cell membrane has probably already hardened, reducing the ability for good stuff to get in and bad stuff, waste, to get out. This is what we would call a circulation problem, and the problem seems to start in the cell first. The hardening prevents the in and out circulation of nutrients, oxygen, and waste. One of the consequences of this hardening is that blood sugar, glucose, a relatively large molecule has trouble making it into the cell. The result is more sugar in the blood. This sounds like a cholesterol problem, membrane hardening, causing a blood sugar problem, but it is more likely that both are caused by the same dietary problems, the wrong foods in the wrong quantities and several nutrient deficiencies. When blood sugar goes up, the liver produces more cholesterol. People with type 1 diabetes who have their blood sugar under control tend to also have normal blood cholesterol and triglycerides. Our main explanation for the connection between blood sugar and blood cholesterol is not that one problem causes the other. We believe that both problems are caused by the same nutritional problems. They are different heads of the same beast. Cholesterol is both a steroid hormone as well as a physical building component for tissues. 
Just like sugar is not to blame for a blood sugar problem, cholesterol is not to blame for a blood cholesterol problem. There is very little connection between the amount of cholesterol you eat and how much is in your blood. Mainstream medicine knows that altering diet barely changes blood cholesterol, which is why they focus on cholesterol-lowering pharmaceuticals. If you get your blood sugar under control, your cholesterol should also be under control, because both results are achieved by the same strategies. We don't have a special recommendation for either of them. Getting healthy requires the same steps, regardless of whether the goal is to improve bone density or blood sugar or inflammation and so on. After grains, most of the rest of our list has to do with oxidation, though oxidized grains are also a problem. In textbooks, oxidation is described as a loss or gain of electrons, which results in an unstable particle. These unstable particles want to bond with other things in order to stabilize themselves. This causes tissue damage when they try to bond with our tissues. These problematic compounds can go by many names, such as trans fatty acids, heterocyclic amines, or acrylamide. But for simplicity, I refer to them all as free radicals. Free oxygen radicals. Our body is able to mitigate free radicals in reasonable quantities. The nutrients that are used to mitigate the oxidative damage caused by free radicals are called antioxidants. The technical explanation of oxidation can be much more complicated, but I describe it as what happens when things break down in nature, or when energy is expended. When they break down, they become unstable. Chemists will probably not appreciate my simplicity here, but this explanation is sufficient when talking about nutritional oxidation. Oxidation is not purely a bad thing. As with most things in life, there is a required balance. Our bodies must break apart glucose using oxidation to use the energy in the sugar, similar to the way we must break apart wood with fire in order to use the heat energy stored in the bonds of the organic tissue. Fire breaks apart the bonds that hold together an organic or carbon-containing compound, leaving only the heavy minerals behind as ash. Organic compounds like trees and sugar are made mostly from carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen. And of course, it is the gaseous oxygen and hydrogen that is fuel for the fire, once liberated from their bonds in the plant or animal or oil or coal tissue. The oxidation of glucose in the cell is like the burning of gasoline in a car engine, and in both cases free radicals are produced. We cannot escape oxidation any more than we can escape sugar but the body cannot handle too much oxidation at a time. We have all heard that antioxidants are good for us, and this is why. Free radicals are unstable and they damage our cells, and antioxidants neutralize or eliminate these particles. Several of the essential nutrients are themselves antioxidants, such as vitamin A, C, and E, and minerals like zinc and selenium. There are countless other antioxidants in foods that are not essential nutrients. A nutrient is technically essential if we cannot make it ourselves and we get a disease without it. This is true for the above vitamins and minerals, but it is not true for common antioxidants such as resveratrol in grapes or curcumin in turmeric. Resveratrol and curcumin do neutralize free radicals, but we do not require either of them to build our tissues or run our metabolism. They are not cofactors for body processes. We do not get a disease if we are missing these nutrients and we can choose to consume any antioxidants without requiring any specific one, except those that are also essential nutrients. 
You can see oxidation yourself if you cut an apple in half and leave it on your counter for a few minutes. When exposed to oxygen, the meat of the fruit will begin to turn brown, and that is the oils in the tissues oxidizing. There are oils in all tissues in nature, but they are protected from oxygen, and thus protected from oxidation, by the skin, peel, or shell of the living fruit, leaf, animal, etc. Some tissues take longer to oxidize than others. As a general rule, plant tissues oxidize faster than animal tissues. This is why you can leave a stick of butter on your table for weeks without concern of oxidation. Refrigeration slows the process even further because oxidation occurs faster with more heat. Heat and time are the primary factors in oxidation. For this reason, in general, fresh is best. This is why liquid oils are on our bad list. This includes all cooking oils, all processed foods with oil on the label, and all supplemental oils that are not protected from oxidation. We do sell oil capsules as supplements, but they are injected with nitrogen to prevent oxygen from getting into the capsule. This process is expensive and most companies do not do it. And even with this added protection, too much time or heat will still oxidize the oils. I realize that removing all oils from the diet can be shocking for most people who are used to modern cooking and processed foods, but we have you covered. We have released a cookbook and have set up social media accounts to help you cook without any of the bad foods mentioned here. You can even message or email us for any cooking advice. Your grandmother probably didn't cook with oils, but if she did, her grandmother definitely did not. Cooking with oils is a very new thing. And though I don't want to get into the politics of how the idea that animal fats were bad for us became popular, we do need to understand that this idea has more to do with marketing than with any sort of fact. Until marketing campaigns in the 20th century, people primarily used animal fats for cooking such as butter, ghee, or lard. You can also cook with water or vinegar, or bake with nothing as a base, or a base of salt. People ask me all the time, but what about olive oil or coconut oil? My response is that it is fine to consume olive oil, if you make it yourself, without heat. Do not cook with it, and consume it quickly. My wife is Middle Eastern, and she huffed and puffed about eliminating olive oil, and though I told her that she can make it herself, apparently she can live without it, because I have never seen her grind any olives in our food processor. I love olives, but not olive oil from a store, even if it is cold-pressed. The time involved from processing to plate practically guarantees that it is oxidized, as it is sitting in a jar with oxygen for long periods of time. Coconut oil is supposed to be one of the most robust plant oils, able to withstand much more heat than the average seed or vegetable oil. But again, even when it is supposedly cold-pressed, time, heat, solvents, and other dubious practices put this oil firmly on our never list. Unless you make it yourself, which is much more difficult than using olives. Once again, coconuts are great, especially the fresh coconut meat and water, just not the oil. Footnote 16. You can oil pull. Swish it in your mouth for several minutes to clean the mouth. Just don't swallow it. Return to text. Any food deep-fried or stir-fried with oil is automatically on the bad list. All of these foods are introducing quantities of free radicals that we simply cannot mitigate. Also in this category are the skins of baked potatoes, and red meat steaks that are pan-cooked beyond medium-rare using high heat. That's very specific but important. 
Steaks need to be cooked with high heat to taste good and be easy to chew and digest. But other forms of cooking with different cuts of meat are less problematic because of lower temperatures. Boiled, stewed, or baked meat is fine, as long as it is done at low temperature. Boiling does not go beyond 100 degrees Celsius. Problematic free radical compounds are formed any time that red meat is cooked, but the medium-rare limit keeps the quantity to a reasonable level. These compounds will also be in any burned animal fats and any charred foods. Processed meats are on our bad list, though the reason is slightly different. Processed meats we define as anything using a nitrate or nitrite as a preservative, and it is pretty much unanimously agreed in the mainstream and alternative health worlds that these foods are specifically bad for contributing to colorectal cancers, or growths in the large intestine, prostate, rectum, or urinary tract. In the kindergarten explanation, I would also call this a result of free radical damage, because the constant bombardment of free radicals from modern foods increases the demands of the very important antioxidant nutrients like selenium, vitamins A, C, and E. Since those nutrients are busy cleaning up damage from food, they are not available to support the immune system or support glands like the prostate, liver, or thyroid. Nutrients are already deficient in general in our food systems, and that same food increases the need for the nutrients it is deficient in. Without those nutrients, we can develop growths anywhere in the body, from cysts close to the surface to an enlarged prostate or inflamed tonsils. The problem can become so bad that it is called a cancer, when this growth or cell division is out of control. Everyone knows that cancer is a problem of cell division, but few people emphasize the two main reasons that these food problems contribute to this. The first is random damage from free radicals. Free radicals damage cells, and in the middle of the cell is the nucleus, which contains the DNA. The DNA replicates itself, but if it is damaged in certain areas, it can have permanent dysfunction in replication. This is only one aspect of cancer. Cancer will always have multiple contributors. People say that sugar feeds cancer, and that is true insofar as too much sugar without enough nutrients causes all kinds of problems in the body. Too much sugar contributes to the type of internal environment that promotes the growth of bad bacteria, candida, fungus, viruses, as well as cysts and growths and cell starvation via the hardening of the cell membrane. But DNA can also be damaged directly by free radicals. The regular diet is loaded with free radicals, and so the chances of DNA being damaged in just the right spot only increases with time. The second reason that these food problems can contribute to cancer is because several essential nutrients are required for cell division in general. If the body is deficient and overburdened with bad foods, problems are guaranteed in the short term, and eventually bigger problems like growths and clogged arteries will appear. Once again, doing the things that you would need to do to improve blood sugar should also protect from the larger, cumulative health problems later, like cancer and cardiovascular disease. I know that people with serious chronic diseases are very likely to have a blood sugar problem, not because one problem causes the other, but because the same food and nutrient problems cause multiple symptoms, and these only increase and accumulate with time, unless the diet and nutrients are corrected. Back to processed meats, there is a growing trend promoting nitrate or nitrite-free meat that uses a celery ingredient instead. But when heated, which occurs in processing, whether it is stated on the label or not, celery basically turns into a nitrate, 
so you should avoid all meats containing celery as well. I hope this list was not overwhelming. It is rather simple when you look at it in point form. Wheat, barley, rye, oats, quinoa, oils, deep fried food, well done red meat if using high heat, burned fats or anything charred, processed meats using nitrates, nitrites or celery, and baked potato skins. With the free radical explanation on the table, we can now finish up the discussion of cholesterol. This damage to our tissues happens first in the veins, because food components are absorbed into the blood, and this is where the chemical attack happens. When the linings of the veins are attacked, cholesterol is called in to plaster over the damaged areas, like drywall putty covering up a hole in the wall. So don't blame the cholesterol for clogging arteries. Blame free radicals. Proof of this concept is the fact that carnivore animals do not have the vascular problems we call arteriosclerosis, which is the hardening of artery walls, or atherosclerosis, the buildup of fats on the artery walls, or clogged arteries. Meat-eating animals basically never have this problem, but herbivores do, especially those that are fed grains and other foods that easily oxidize. At this point, we can now understand why peripheral neuropathy is strongly associated with diabetes. Peripheral neuropathy can also be called peripheral artery disease. The medical world tends to say that diabetes causes peripheral neuropathy, but once again, we believe that these are both caused by the same food and nutrient problems. Peripheral neuropathy is usually described as a problem with nerves, nerves beyond, on the periphery of, the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord. We prefer to describe it as a vascular problem, or a circulation problem, because blocked veins have reduced circulation. And the problem is primarily in the small veins of the body. When you have a vascular problem in larger veins, they will have a different name for it, probably coronary heart disease or atherosclerosis. I have described how a blood sugar problem corresponds with a hardening of the cell membrane, which is a circulation problem at the cellular level, and we have talked about free radicals damaging the inner linings of veins, where cholesterol is brought in to plug up those damaged tissues. Since large veins are harder to clog up than small veins, this circulation issue and vascular damage shows up first in the small veins, eyes explaining blindness and generally impaired sight in diabetics toes and feet, fingers and hands, ears, and so on. To me, this perfectly explains why people with blood sugar problems have rampant circulation problems, and why amputation is among the greatest fears of diabetics. People with low blood sugar tend to tell me that they have ongoing issues with cold extremities, usually hands, feet, and ears. People with high blood sugar tend to tell me that they experience numbness in these same areas. These are both potential effects of a circulation problem. By this same token, people with low blood sugar tend to have a hard time staying warm, and people with high blood sugar tend to be too warm, practically all of the time. This should also be easily understood at this point. Cells burn sugar as fuel, and a lack of sugar in the cell should logically equal a cold cell. An analogy for high blood sugar might be too much fuel in the fireplace. Even without the required minerals to properly utilize the insulin and the sugar, leading to numerous problems in the body, there is still enough sugar floating around to be hot. Sugar is a hot molecule in general, and it burns very hot. And even if it doesn't make it into the cellular furnace, it will dissipate its heat eventually as it roams around the body. 
the body should be able to regulate its temperature naturally. But when fundamental processes are off, due to circulation problems and nutrient deficiencies or imbalances, the body's ability to adjust the thermostat can be affected. Sugar is not only hot, it is also acidic. Minor fluctuations in anything in the blood affect the human quickly and usually dramatically. Fluctuations in blood pH can be life-threatening. Additionally, much of the health world now recognizes that alkalinity is an important factor in health. People argue about how to become alkaline, but there is very little disagreement that being slightly alkaline is ideal. Many people even say that cancer cannot live in an alkaline environment. Having something acidic in excess in the blood is logically a bad thing if we are trying to be alkaline. The mainstream medical world does not know how to deal with circulation issues, so when a diabetic is developing gangrene in their feet or hands, amputating the limb is practically their only known option. Remember that veins start out large at the heart and get smaller and smaller as they branch out to connect with every living cell in the body. Gangrene is essentially a suffocated tissue, cut off from normal blood circulation, unable to feed on the sugars and nutrients delivered by the blood, and unable to get rid of cellular waste. According to kidney.org, almost all patients with type 1 diabetes develop some evidence of functional change in the kidneys within 2 to 5 years of the diagnosis. About 30 to 40% progress to more serious kidney disease, usually within about 10 to 30 years. They also say that about 10 to 40% of the people with type 2 diabetes will eventually develop end-stage kidney failure, requiring treatment to maintain life. Treatment, in this case, will likely mean pharmaceutical blood thinners, diuretics, and dialysis. The kidneys are full of very tiny veins. I hope it is abundantly clear why the circulation problem described above could easily affect the kidneys before symptoms are noticed in parts of the body with larger veins. To us, most people on dialysis do not have a kidney problem. They have a circulation problem, which shows up first in the small veins like those in the kidneys. According to the American Diabetes Association, every 30 seconds a diabetic has one of their limbs amputated somewhere in the world. This tragedy is completely preventable. Later in the book I will give you a list of free and cheap circulation exercises, which in addition to smart food and supplement choices practically eliminate these circulation problems. There are only a few more things to mention in the food category before we move on. We do not differentiate between good and bad cholesterol. In our view, all fats are good unless they are oxidized. This includes anything burned. All oils can oxidize and become rancid. Mainstream medicine likes to call low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, bad. But our view is that this is simply oxidized cholesterol, and neither forms of cholesterol are a useful marker for health. When you see studies comparing fat intakes of certain populations or individuals, they make no distinction between oxidized fats or healthy ones. A similar problem exists with studies about eating meats. You have just seen that two types of meat are on our bad list. Well done red meat cooked at high temperature and processed meats. Studying whether people eat meat or not fails to give us useful information if we do not differentiate between good and bad meats or fats. Deep fried chicken is much different from roasted chicken. I mentioned above that corn is fine, but it actually is on a list of bad foods that we commonly use. The 12 bad foods. End note 32. 1. Wheat. 2. Barley. 3. Rye. 4. Oats. 5. Corn. 6. Soy. 7. 
processed meats. 8. Oil in a bottle. 9. Carbonated drinks with a meal. 10. Well done red meat. 11. Fried food. 12. Baked skins of potatoes, yams, sweet potatoes. Return to text. This list was generated by our brother-in-arms, Dr. Peter Glidden, and it includes all of the foods mentioned above, except it also adds corn and soy. The reason is not because of these foods themselves. They are on the list because soy and corn, if not labeled organic, will have high concentrations of pesticides. Many gluten-free processed foods use non-organic corn and soy, and these should be avoided. You can have corn on the cob, or even homemade popcorn, plain with butter and salt added after popping, and even use corn flour if you want, but make sure it is organic. And don't expect it to have any nutritional value, because it is basically barren food to begin with. The exception to this is a practice used in several non-industrialized populations, which is to add ash or lime, calcium hydroxide, not the fruit. This addition of calcium-rich substances increases the nutritional value of corn greatly. If you look up how to make traditional corn recipes like tortillas of Mexico or Costa Rica, the recipe still tells you to add ash or lime. Modern food industries haven't come up with a new way to mimic the textures, tastes, or nutrient availability of this traditional food. The closest they get is by using wheat flour. In addition to substantially changing the nutritional qualities of the corn, this calcium addition is a major boost of important minerals, especially calcium. Most recipes call for a 1 to 1 ratio of corn to ash or lime. Some people are worried about soy for contributing to hormone problems. Well, sugar could also be said to be a hormone-disrupting chemical. There are many chemical threats to the body that we can defend against if we are healthy in general. I believe that a small amount of soy is fine, but it can be a problem if a lot of soy is used to make a replacement food, like a soy burger or soy meatball. Many people avoid meat and replace it with soy. The quantity of soy is the problem here. Similarly, people avoid gluten and replace it with gluten-free products in packages that are still essentially junk food because of questionable ingredients like quinoa, non-organic corn or soy, extra sugar, and oils. Both corn and soy can be consumed in moderate quantities. If your corn is mixed with ash or lime, you can eat a lot more of it without a problem. Soy sauce is not a lot of soy, but make sure that it is gluten-free because it usually has wheat in it. If you choose to avoid meat, don't switch to soy replacements. If you choose to avoid gluten for your health or to improve your blood sugar, don't just switch to packaged gluten-free snacks, especially if those snacks are made from corn or soy. I haven't even mentioned dyes or preservatives, and generally these are not my concern. If you avoid processed food in general, you will by default avoid most of your exposure to processed sugar, oils, preservatives, dyes, and other worrisome compounds. There is one more bad food on our list, but it is actually a drink, and we will cover it in the next chapter. Before we move on, I want to mention fasting, which is not eating for a period of time. I thought about giving this its own chapter, but a few paragraphs should suffice. One of the commonalities of long-lived cultures is calorie restriction. Cultures that live longest eat less food than we do in the modern world. Most of these cultures practice regular calorie restriction for the very basic reason that they are poor and don't have the ability to buy a lot of calories. They are restricted to what they can grow, hunt, and forage. In addition to this basic limit, 
they also tend to consciously restrict eating for certain times of the year, usually for a religious purpose. The overall result of these factors is less total food in the average week, month, and year. Less food means less damage from harmful food particles, because primitive people surely burn some of their food. Damage from free radicals produced by digestion itself, and also less nutrients used in the digestion process. Modern science has determined numerous benefits to fasting, and most of this research is being done on intermittent fasting, which is the practice of restricting eating to a six or eight hour window of the day, allowing the remaining hours to focus on digesting that food and restoring tissues. Much of the research highlights specific benefits to some of the factors we have already discussed about blood sugar. Increased insulin sensitivity, Remember that insulin resistance is said to be a major factor in developing serious blood sugar problems like diabetes, so increased insulin sensitivity is a really good thing. Improved beta cell function, the cells that produce insulin in the pancreas. Reduced hunger, which is obviously a good thing for reducing overall calorie load. Facilitating weight loss and improved health even in the absence of weight loss. There are even more remarkable documented benefits to fasting and intermittent fasting, but they are beyond this book. The point is that less food is good in general. Food requires nutrients and energy to digest and metabolize. Less food means less demands on your body to process that food. We have already discussed this regarding sugar itself. More sugar requires more nutrients. We have also covered several foods that directly damage the body. Less food overall should mean less harmful foods specifically. You can't eat any of the bad foods if you're not eating at all. Having said all of that, before you achieve healthy blood sugar, fasting may be very difficult and even dangerous. Before blood sugar is under control, fasting can cause low blood sugar. Low blood sugar can cause fainting, lightheadedness, and dizziness. All of these are acutely dangerous, especially in older or overweight people, where falling down can be a very big deal especially if it is on the stairs or while doing a chore like gardening with hedge trimmers, for example. Before I got my blood sugar under control, I passed out often, and I have scars on my face to prove that it can be very dangerous to fall down in the wrong place at the wrong time. I say all of this because people hear about the benefits of fasting and they tend to want to jump into it. If you have a blood sugar problem, do not worry too much about fasting. Smaller, healthier, and more frequent meals is the main strategy I recommend. As your blood sugar improves, fasting should become increasingly easier. As you become healthier, especially with mineral supplementation, intermittent fasting should become quite normal. Most of us did not try to intermittent fast. It just ended up that way because we were less and less hungry as we became healthier and more nourished with micronutrients. You can try to space your meals out more and reduce the portion sizes. But if you do get lightheaded, dizzy, or very irritable, it's okay to eat something. Once healthy, most of the people that I know in this business or on our programs do not eat breakfast. Most of us eat one medium-sized meal and usually a smaller snack-sized meal as well. Some people eat two solid meals a day, but people who work more strenuous jobs like construction or who exercise vigorously invariably will be hungrier and probably require an extra meal. While you are working on your blood sugar, I do recommend breakfast. Protein is the best option in my opinion. Protein and fruit is even better, but the protein is more important. As mentioned, a useful strategy is to cook extra dinner and eat the leftovers for breakfast. 
We tend to put more effort and better ingredients into dinner than the other meals, especially for busy people or those who must leave the house for work or school early in the morning. One of the reasons we modern people adopted carbohydrate and sugar-heavy breakfasts was convenience. Convenience is rarely healthy, but it is fairly convenient to just eat the extra dinner for breakfast. If you are trying to increase the time between meals and are dealing with symptoms of low blood sugar, I recommend keeping dried fruits accessible. Dried fruits spike blood sugar faster than regular fruit, and in the case of stopping low blood sugar quickly, this is a good thing. My favorite dried fruits are dates, figs, and apricots, which tend not to have preservatives like other dried fruits. Of course, you can dry your own fruit as well. Just read labels if you are buying it and avoid preservatives and added oils. Another go-to strategy to deal with low blood sugar quickly is hydration with water and water-soluble nutrients, and this leads us nicely into the next chapter. Chapter Keys Foods are not what they used to be because soils and recipes have changed significantly. Avoiding grains is the most important food factor to achieving healthy blood sugar. Since foods have far less nutritional value than they used to, we must make up for this with nutritional supplements. It is not practical to try to replicate primitive or natural lifestyles if we live in the modern world. Sugar is not the enemy. Too much sugar is the real problem. Fasting is generally good for metabolism, but it may not work for you until you get your blood sugar under control. Some foods will cause great damage to our bodies, and it is wise to avoid all of these if we wish to be healthy for the duration of our lives. Chapter 6. Dehydration I wouldn't blame you for thinking that the bad drink I mentioned in the last chapter was alcohol, but it's not. Alcohol is another quantitative problem, not a fundamental problem. You can have some alcohol, even on a regular basis, and still have healthy blood sugar. The last food on our bad list is actually a category, carbonated beverages. I'm including this in the dehydration chapter because I consider anything that lowers our water-soluble nutrients or anything that increases our need for water-soluble nutrients to be described as dehydration. In my view, dehydration and low blood sugar are basically the same thing. Someone with low blood sugar will invariably have signs of chronic dehydration. I also believe high blood sugar will very likely have signs of chronic dehydration, but it is particularly obvious with low blood sugar. Dehydration in general is something I see all the time in people with pretty much every health problem you can name. Culturally, we don't consume enough water-soluble nutrients or water, and we also habitually consume many other liquids that dehydrate, causing us to need even more water and water-soluble nutrients to replenish. Carbonated drinks are a weird one on the list because some are much worse than others. But if you apply the general rule of no carbonation ever, you will save yourself from all of the complications involved. Carbonation will in no way help you get control of your blood sugar. Some people think that because carbonation is acidic, it actually acidifies the stomach. But it is actually less acidic than stomach acid. And in this case, the chemistry is complicated. But the gist is that carbonation actually makes stomach acid less acidic. End note 37. It always hurt my brain to think about this because more acidic means lower pH. Raising pH means weaker acid. Increasing acidity means decreasing pH. I had to type it a few times even to make sure I have it right. And I've been talking about this stuff for years. Stomach acid is supposed to have a pH between 1 and 2. 
Carbonated water is generally around a pH of 4.5, and cola, which we call the worst of the carbonated drinks, is still less acidic than stomach acid, at a pH of around 2.6 to 2.7. Return to text. As described in the digestion chapter, stomach acidity is one of the keys to digesting food and absorbing nutrients, and this is not something we want to mess around with. The surest way to mess up the stomach acid, besides avoiding salt or taking a drug that lowers stomach acid, is to consume carbonated drinks. Salt is a water-soluble nutrient, which means that it dissolves in water. All nutrients are dissolved either in water or fat, and sometimes both. Fatty nutrients are more complicated, and they have much less to do with hydration, so we will put them aside for now. As mentioned, I consider any substance that reduces our water-soluble nutrients to be a dehydration agent. This reduction could be in the form of a reaction, as in stomach acid changing due to the presence of carbonation, or it could be a substance that accelerates the rate that we dump our water-soluble nutrients, such as caffeine or alcohol. Sometimes these are called diuretics. A diuretic substance makes us urinate more. Urine is not just water. Urine is water and water-soluble nutrients, among other things. More urination means we lose more water-soluble nutrients, as well as water. End note 38. There is a growing trend for people to drink their own urine, mainly to gain back the water-soluble vitamins and minerals. It is not necessary to perform this recycling. We can just consume more water-soluble vitamins and minerals. Return to text. Many of the essential nutrients are water-soluble. Salt is two of them, sodium and chloride, as are the bulk of the vitamins, the Bs and vitamin C. Many of our key essential minerals are also water-soluble, such as calcium, magnesium, potassium, phosphorus, and of course, sodium and chloride. You have probably heard the term electrolytes, and this word refers to the water-soluble nutrients in general. In the simplest sense, dehydration is a lack of electrolytes. As these nutrients require water to become chemically activated, water and electrolytes must be in balance. Both a lack of water and a lack of electrolytes cause dehydration. If we drink water without electrolytes, we will likely still be thirsty. Thirst is the body asking for both water and electrolytes. Think of how thirsty you become if you consume something really salty. The body is asking you for more water to balance the increased electrolytes. By the way, sugar is also water-soluble. Consuming excess sugar increases the need for water and the other electrolytes. Is it any wonder that a sugary, salty soda never seems to actually quench our thirst? Too much sugar and salt, not enough water. Keep all of this in mind in your daily life. If you drink only water all day, you are probably making yourself dehydrated. Drinking water all day may cause ravenous cravings for salty or sugary foods. The easiest way to mitigate this is to salt your liquids and foods to taste, which is again the point that you can just barely taste it. Some people might think it weird to suggest adding salt to coffee or tea or even water, but I promise that it actually makes these drinks more palatable and satisfying. Even better in the case of coffee or tea is to add salt and a fat, such as butter or heavy cream, especially if you're used to drinking your caffeine or water with sugar. Many people say that their drink without sugar isn't satisfying, but using butter instead of milk or cream should be much more enjoyable. Adding the fat and the salt should reduce the overall dehydration effect. Water or caffeinated drinks without electrolytes is boring, largely unpalatable, and generally unsatisfying. 
This is part of the reason we are sold such a huge variety of flavored drinks, usually flavored with water-soluble sugar and salt. It is common in many natural communities for a chunk of rock salt to always be in their cup, whatever liquid they are drinking. Juices made from fruits or vegetables are much more satisfying than water alone, and one reason is because they are loaded with electrolytes like vitamin C and potassium. We tend to wake up dehydrated because our body is always using water and the electrolytes, even when we sleep. You should be waking up thirsty. Water is only one part of what your body is asking for. My favorite morning recommendation is to start the day with some salty water, to taste, of course. If coffee or tea is the first thing you put in your body, you are keeping yourself dehydrated, and that is not a good start to the day any way you look at it. I love coffee, but I put salty water in my body before the morning coffee, and then some more salty water immediately afterward. Protein is sometimes considered to be a diuretic, particularly in excess. End note 39. Nitrogen is a byproduct of protein digestion and the body responds by pulling water from other tissues to flush the nitrogen out of the system, hence the diuretic effect. Return to text. Protein is sometimes considered to be a diuretic, particularly in excess, which would seem to contradict this whole chapter. But one of the things we want to do is have our body running largely off of protein and fat rather than carbs or sugar, and we will go more into that in the next chapter. A carby or sugary breakfast will do you no favors. As mentioned, if you have a blood sugar problem, our recommendation is going to be to eat a protein-based breakfast instead of carbs or sugar. The reason that protein plus fruit is even more optimal is because fruit should also have some more of the electrolyte vitamins and minerals in it. I would go further and advise eating protein to overcome sugar cravings. Though I recommended eating more frequent, smaller, and healthier meals, no one in the mainstream or alternative health worlds recommends eating before bed. Usually the recommendation is not to eat at least three hours before bedtime, and I agree. But this is the time when sugar cravings tend to be the most intense. And protein and minerals, including salt, are both recommended to quell the craving, instead of a sugary or carby snack. Fruits have many other compounds to balance their sugars, and so they are not on our bad list. Fruits are also very watery, which means that you really can't eat that much of them before your stomach is full. Remember that relief from low blood sugar using dried fruit is very short-lasting. High glycemic foods like dry fruit do spike the blood sugar quickly, but it also drops back down very quickly. Fresh fruits do not raise blood sugar as quickly, and I believe this is because the water is evaporated and the sugars are concentrated in the dried fruit. You can easily eat four whole bananas if they're dried. One banana has quite a bit of sugar in it, but with the water in the fruit, we couldn't eat anywhere near as much of it. Long story short, we can eat more dried fruit than wet, but they still have the same sugar content, and blood sugar is spiked faster with more sugar in the dried fruit. By the way, banana is the only fruit I have an actual problem with. The bananas in your grocery store are much bigger than their natural version, thus they have more of the meat of the fruit. In general, the healthiest fruits have a high peel-to-meat ratio. Less meat, more peel. Nutrients are also concentrated in the skin or peel, while sugar and starch is concentrated in the meat. This is why berries are generally the healthiest choice. They don't have much meat, and no one that I know ever peels a berry. You simply eat the whole thing. People in the wild tend to eat the banana peel, which is loaded with water-soluble nutrients like potassium, B6, and B12. Footnote 17. They either grind the banana skin up and add it to other dishes, 
or bake the peels and eat them like a potato chip. In the modern world, a washed banana skin can be blended in with a smoothie or used to replace the oil-drenched potato chips that we have outlawed on our bad list. Baked banana skins should probably also be on our bad list because acrylamide, which is bad for the same reason as free radicals, is produced in relatively high amounts when baked. Not as high as baked potato skins, but higher than we would recommend. Baked banana skins are still much better than potato chips, and in my opinion, they are fine in moderation and on rare occasions. Freshly ground banana skin is a much safer option. Baked goods in general have relatively high acrylamide and should be kept to rare occasions. Anything that hardens upon baking should be minimized as a general rule. Return to text. So when you eat only the banana meat, you are pretty much just eating sugar and starch. I do not recommend anyone eat a whole banana every day. Many practitioners put the limit at half a banana per day. But I would go further and limit that to a maximum of four times per week, which is two total bananas. Let's get back to carbonation. If you Google, does carbonation dehydrate? You will understand why I said above, simply, it's complicated. Most of the research has to do with the actual water content of the drink, which is not my concern. By this metric alone, your doctor might tell you that it's okay to drink carbonated water all day, as long as you reach your eight classes per day, or whatever their recommendation is. Footnote 18. We recommend a half gallon to one gallon, or two to four liters, per day generally for an adult, but this is something you must gauge yourself. If you are more active, sweat more, or eat more today than you did yesterday, then you need more water today. Return to text. Seltzer waters or carbonated mineral waters are much better than sodas, since they don't have extra ingredients like sugar or caffeine or any of the strange and often undisclosed flavorings and dyes in today's mass market drinks. Many seltzers and carbonated waters will also have minerals in them, which, if you didn't understand the stomach acid lowering problem, you might think was a good thing. So far, I am only talking about the carbonation itself, yet there are many potential problems with more complex carbonated beverages. Of course, sodas also have processed sugar, salt, and the worst category of them, colas, have a very bad ingredient in them called phosphoric acid. Some other sodas have this acid in them as well, but colas are the worst by far. This can be a little bit complicated, but most things are easier to apply if you understand some of the reasons behind it, and this phosphoric acid thing is very important. Here I've shared a table of the calcium to phosphorus ratio of various food items. The ideal ratio of calcium to phosphorus is 2 to 1. Beef and poultry has 1 to 17. Liver and kidney has 1 to 44. Alfalfa has 8 to 1. A whole mouse has 2 to 1, the ideal ratio. An apple has 1 to 1. Grape has 1 to 1. Sardines, 1 to 6. Mackerel, 1 to 34. Wheat, 1 to 8. Millet 1 to 6, corn 1 to 37, oats 1 to 8, sunflower seeds 1 to 7, buckwheat 1 to 8, rice 1 to 8, peanut 1 to 7, beer 1 to 6, cow milk 1.3 to 1, cottage cheese 1 to 4, yogurt 1 to 1, Minute Maid orange juice with calcium 1.3 to 1, colas 1 to 20. Just like we require water and the water-soluble nutrients in a balanced proportion, there is also a balancing act in the ratios of many other nutrients. In this case, the balance of phosphorus to calcium is very important, mostly because calcium itself is so important. 
When we consume foods or drinks with a lot of phosphorus, we are increasing our calcium requirement. Our food supply and lifestyles are already catastrophically deficient in calcium and the other bone minerals, as described in the food chapter. Phosphoric acid greatly exacerbates this deficiency, which is why many studies show a very distinct link between soda consumption and osteoporosis and other calcium deficiency problems. From the table above, we can see that the ideal balance only exists in one case, which is a whole mouse. This is true for larger vertebrates as well. The ideal nutrient balance is achieved only when the entire animal is eaten. Since we are a species that does not exclusively eat whole vertebrates, we must also keep our calcium to phosphorus ratio in balance by consuming more calcium than phosphorus in general. Phosphorus is in all foods, as it is one of the three nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, that we use as fertilizer for all plants. But we only fortify select foods with calcium, and always with inorganic calcium, that is barely absorbable. We can also see that meat in general, and organs in particular, have a lot more phosphorus than calcium. If you've ever seen a study showing that meat eaters have higher osteoporosis, arthritis, or cancer, I would say that this is the primary explanation. These studies are looking at modern meat eaters, who usually only eat the muscle of an animal. By doing this, they are ingesting a lot of phosphorus and not a lot of calcium in proportion. Unless they consume the bones and joints as well, they will not achieve this ratio. Remember that primitive people who successfully get all of their nutrients, including calcium, do not just eat the bones. I often get messages from people who are looking to get all of their nutrition from food. They ask me if they can eat entire animals for all of their required nutrition. The answer is no, because the primitive people do more than eat bones. They also use ash and irrigate their fields and compost. If someone is asking how to replicate this lifestyle, the real answer is to move to one of these places and live like them. It can't be done in your backyard. This is why we do not rely on food for our animals either. We do not expect them to get all of their nutrients from food, no matter how big the property is that they can forage on. On the calcium to phosphorus table, we saw that alfalfa has an excellent ratio, 8 times more calcium than phosphorus. This is precisely why alfalfa is a common base for animal feeds. We need the animals to get a lot of calcium, because their musculoskeletal physiology is very similar to ours, and alfalfa helps keep that calcium and phosphorus ratio in proportion. Considering this, rather than try to grow my own food and burn wood all day for the ash and grind all my own bones up, I'd rather eat alfalfa calf pellets. From the chart, we can see that most foods are out of balance. Most foods have more phosphorus than calcium, and cola has a particularly bad ratio. Notice also that corn has a very bad ratio of 37 times more phosphorus than calcium. Remember that people in Mexico and Costa Rica take their corn, dry it, and add ash or lime to it in equal weight to the corn. If they have a pound of corn, they add a pound of ash or lime, both of which are high in calcium. Costa Rica has a blue zone, the Nicoya Peninsula, and this is how they eat their corn there. These foods that have a lot of phosphorus drain our calcium. The blood needs to have these nutrients in balance all the time. If you pour in a bunch of phosphorus without the required calcium to balance it out, your body will pull calcium from other places in the body to put it in the blood. To me, this is the main reason for tooth and mouth problems associated with sodas. I do not think it is the sugar rotting the teeth. I think it is the phosphorus forcing your body to pull calcium from other places, such as teeth, gums, muscles, bones, and joints. I mentioned earlier two main reasons why foods can contribute to cancer, and this is another reason, though it is not as intuitive. 
In addition to the common idea that sugar feeds cancer, is the idea that cancer cannot live in an alkaline environment. In my opinion, adequate calcium intake is the most important factor determining whether someone is alkaline or not. I have mentioned that the bile in the duodenum converts acidic food from the stomach into alkaline food for the intestines. Sometimes this is mistaken to mean that if your digestion is healthy, you will be alkaline, but that is not completely true. Calcium is one of the water-soluble electrolytes. All of the electrolytes are required for optimum hydration and overall health. To be healthy overall is to be alkaline, as alkalinity is a symptom or effect of being healthy. All of the other keys to health can be in place. No bad foods, moderate portions, moderate regular exercise or physical work, low stress, good family, and 89 of the essential nutrients with only calcium lacking, and the person will not be alkaline. I don't have a scientific study to back that up, but I will bet on it. Putting copper onto the skin as a bracelet or wire will quickly turn the skin underneath a color if the person is not properly alkaline. The color can be green, black, blue, or a combination. This will happen to almost anyone in the Western world because almost everyone is missing adequate calcium. You probably won't be able to find any popular diet with an emphasis on calcium outside of food, and so even people who are trying to eat healthy are missing calcium if they are not supplementing. Worse, if they go to their local health food store and buy a calcium supplement, it probably isn't very absorbable. If they take the recommended dose of that product, they will still be short on calcium. And of course, they will likely be short on most of the other 89 essential nutrients. The company who makes the supplements that I sell is the only one that I can find that even attempts to put all 90 essential nutrients into products in their correct proportions. In my own life, I have no color under my copper on a regular day. Within a few hours of becoming dehydrated, I will begin to show color. Again, dehydrated means both a lack of water or and a lack of water-soluble nutrients. This can be because of sweating or exertion. It can be from eating more food than normal or eating more sugar or drinking more caffeine or alcohol. For me, it usually happens when traveling, especially on planes. The combination of stress and a lack of water and electrolytes leaves me temporarily green on practically every trip. The first thing I do when arriving at the destination is to top up on these nutrients, salty water and supplements. Our two main daily products are heavy on the B vitamins and the calcium, magnesium, and the other bone minerals. And after a few hours of one serving of each and plenty of water, I'm usually clear. I don't mean it to sound like the only place to get these nutrients is to buy it from us, but the truth is, we have this market cornered. We are the only group who appreciates the necessity of all 90 essential nutrients. We even believe that more nutrients are essential, but we won't be paying for the science to prove it, and we don't think that the mainstream is going to either. So we consume more than the 60 elements we believe to be strictly essential. In fact, we can't even separate out the 60, because when you find the whole spread of minerals in nature, they all come together whether you like it or not. The full spectrum mineral source comes with lead and fluoride as well, because those are naturally occurring minerals. Different forms of those minerals can be used industrially, but that is not what you find in spring water or humic shale or sea moss. Remember that nutrients concentrate up the food chain, called biomagnification. This is why a lot of people are concerned about eating big, old, predatory fish like tuna and swordfish, because their flesh has concentrated all of the minerals that were in trace amounts in the seawater. Plants grew in that seawater, and so did little plant plankton and animal plankton, called zooplankton, Fish ate the plants or the plankton, other fish ate those fish, probably several steps before it gets to a tuna or a shark. Therefore, the big predators will have higher concentrations of mercury and lead and so on. 
I've seen many informal comments on this phenomena in the media, and people generally seem to be confused, thinking that this is caused by human pollution. This has nothing to do with pollution. It is bioaccumulation of naturally occurring elements. I actually hope that more companies catch on to this and start developing true full-spectrum products with the adequate amounts of everything. This would help us and our company too. If we are true to our goal, then having this message reach more people is what we want. But more companies understanding this would also mean more companies spreading information about this, which would also be very good for our business, because we usually have to start from scratch with people. More companies understanding the importance of this also might lead to less corners being cut in the supplement products on the market. This is an especially egregious problem in the retail selling of supplements. If you took the advice in this book literally and were determined to get all of this stuff at your local supplement store, you will be shocked at the size of the cart you will need for these products and the bill it will produce. It is common practice to sell all the vitamins separately, as well as the minerals. It seems cheaper to buy a $10 container of vitamin C than to buy $100 or more for a few comprehensive products, but when you consider that there are 16 essential vitamins and at least 60 essential minerals, then buying them individually doesn't make any sense. These retail supplements will likely be of the lowest possible quality that the company can get away with and will likely show no results. I've seen a ton of companies that claim to provide all the nutrients we need, but a quick comparison proves it untrue. If more companies shared our goal of total nutrition, not only would the industry itself have a better reputation, but costs might also decrease with increased production of core ingredients. Some nutrients you can definitely get in foods. You can find probiotic-rich foods that you enjoy and eat them all the time. You can eat connective tissue, especially from small animals and gelatin. Your fruits and vegetables will have some vitamins and other phytonutrients in them. You cannot count on them to have significant amounts of minerals, but plants produce vitamins, amino acids, and essential fatty acids, as well as antioxidants and more. The fruit would have had more vitamins and other nutrients if it was grown on properly mineralized soils, but nonetheless. Your meat and eggs and many other foods will definitely have amino acids. Twelve of them are essential, and they're generally not a problem to get from foods. Essential fatty acids will be in the eggs, butter, meat, avocados, fish, and more. All of that is great, but we're missing the minerals. We can't just eat calcium. It isn't possible to add it up by eating foods that contain calcium naturally, like raw milk, or by eating foods that are fortified with calcium, like cheese. Primitive people never did it that way. They don't even eat a lot of food. They put minerals onto their fields, they consume ashes and bones and broths, and they don't consume large amounts of things that screw this up, like sodas and beer. Even if we make bone soups and eat most of our small animals like chickens and fish, we are still going to be far short on calcium. I've seen many people attempt to reverse their calcium deficiency problem by using things that are supposed to have enough calcium in them, such as eggshells or coral calcium. The industry knows that coral calcium, calcium carbonate, or calcium citrate, gluconate, and so on, are all poorly absorbed. I have never seen anyone reverse any calcium deficiency problem, such as muscle pain, or cramps or twitches, or osteoporosis or arthritis, using these sources. The internet will tell you that there is enough calcium in eggshells and that you can grind them up and bake them to make them more palatable, but I will bet that it will not work. We need absorbable forms of plant-derived minerals. Getting back to the topic, healthy blood sugar is a consequence of being healthy, and though calcium is not the nutrient responsible for enabling insulin to get glucose into cells, calcium is responsible for so many other processes and tissues in the body that I could spend the whole book listing them. Though calcium is not the key nutrient for blood sugar, 
it is definitely one of the most important nutrients in the body. Having carbonated drinks on our bad list has always been confusing for people, and we have only discussed a few of the reasons why they are bad. For someone with a blood sugar problem, they must only understand that carbonation is not helping them, and that the extra sugar in most carbonated drinks is not good either. Soda itself isn't actually bad. Sodas were originally designed as medicines. Root beer was originally made with powerful herbs like sassafras root, allspice, coriander, juniper, ginger, wintergreen, dandelion, spikenard, and many other possible medicinal plants. It was caffeine-free and wasn't normally made with added sugar. This type of drink was known as a tonic, and I would definitely call it medicinal, and even healthy. Same goes for ginger ale, obviously based on ginger root. Even Coca-Cola, said to be caffeinated and carbonated coca leaves originally, would still be a medicine in my view. The key to remember is the stomach acid lowering effect of the carbonation. If you love carbonation and can't live without it, we strongly recommend keeping it far away from meals, minimum one to two hours before or after eating, and consume some salty water after drinking it and more before you eat. Taking digestive enzymes containing a chloride compound, like betaine hydrochloride, is an even better way to ensure that you have strong enough stomach acid to digest the next meal. There are also some carbonated drinks that are categorically healthy, such as probiotic-rich kombucha. We already mentioned that increasing probiotics is a good idea for basically anyone, and especially someone with a blood sugar problem. Kombucha could be one of the best ways to introduce more probiotics, because the carbonation lowers the stomach acid. Stomach acid kills many of the probiotics before they make it to the intestines. That's why it's usually recommended to take billions of active cultures because most of them are not expected to make it to the large intestine. Just don't drink kombucha anywhere near meals and definitely top up your stomach acid afterward with salt. There is a growing trend for craft sodas as well as beers, which are basically small-scale producers who create interesting and typically healthier versions of carbonated beverages. My friend Chef Norman loves root beer, and he was upset that it was on our bad list. A couple of years ago, we drove across America and tried many root beers that we had never seen before. Many of them had no worrisome ingredients in them, except the carbonation. We enjoyed them together in times on the road that were far away from our meals. All of this goes for beer drinkers as well. If you must drink beer, make sure that it is gluten-free. You'd be surprised how many popular brands are already gluten-free. Google a list. Keep it away from meals and top up your salt and other electrolytes before and after. This isn't as easy to do as it is with seltzer because beer tends to make you hungry as well. And most people would recommend eating with alcohol to reduce the overall effects of the alcohol. Beer is both lowering the stomach acidity and dehydrating as a diuretic. This is double not good, and if the beer is made from a gluten grain or oats, then it is a triple whammy of not goodness. Many people with blood sugar problems do also have an alcohol problem. Many diabetics don't drink at all, but there is a definite connection between people who drink alcohol and people with a blood sugar problem. Alcohol drinking is a common risk factor for several diseases, including diabetes, cancer, and heart disease. This doesn't mean that alcohol causes these problems, but that people who drink alcohol are more likely to have these problems. My main problem with alcohol is the fact that it depletes water-soluble nutrients and thus dehydrates us, exacerbating existing nutrient deficiencies. It is not advised to simply drop alcohol cold turkey if you drink a lot of it. Stopping cold turkey can be dangerous. One thing this can do is put you in a severe state of low blood sugar. 
the shaking, jitters, irritability, sweating, and the rest of the list of withdrawal symptoms are basically the same as the list of low blood sugar symptoms. In my view, alcoholics are essentially running on the alcohol sugar, which is why high blood sugar is most obvious in alcoholics. Someone with low blood sugar will probably just fall asleep after a couple of drinks or a handful of candy, but the high blood sugar person essentially needs the sugar for their basic energy. This is because they are not getting their energy the natural way, which is from metabolizing food and nutrients. Switching to a gluten-free alcohol will be the first way to reduce the overall harm of excess alcohol consumption. Weaning is highly recommended. If you find your energy levels crashing, dried fruits raise blood sugar fast, and so they can be an excellent crutch for someone with a sugar crash. I'd rather you eat a gluten-free candy bar than take another drink, but dried fruits should do the job in a much healthier way. All of this applies to anyone who is addicted to sugar, whether it is chocolate bars, soda, cookies, or alcohol. First, make sure the version of your treat is gluten-free. Reducing the sugar while increasing protein and electrolytes and water is key to shifting your body from running on sugar to running on the diverse range of nutrients that we require to function optimally. This could also apply to those who are running on coffee. I used to drink 10 or more cups of coffee per day because I wasn't getting energy from food and nutrients. Now I am jittery after only a couple of cups and this experience is common with people who shift into a healthier diet and lifestyle. They can't handle as much coffee, sugar, or alcohol anymore. One reason for this is probably that we are actually absorbing more of everything now, with healthier intestines. We might as well mention energy drinks, as they are often carbonated and often used for energy by people who have a lack of natural metabolic energy. Of course, many energy drinks have the same problems as soda. Too much sugar, caffeine, flavorings, dyes, and so on. But most of the energy drinks on the market actually rely on essential nutrients as their active ingredients. Read the label of your favorite energy drink, and I will bet the primary energy-giving component, aside from sugar and caffeine, is actually an essential nutrient like taurine or arginine, both essential amino acids, or a B vitamin like niacin, B3, or pyridoxine, B6, or cobalamin, B12. So you are buying a rather expensive version of one or a few essential nutrients with added sugar, caffeine, and probably some well-known energy-supporting plants like ginseng or ginkgo. Footnote 20. There are also several supplements marketed to help with alcohol hangovers. Invariably, these are just B vitamins or those same energy drink ingredients. Why do those supplements help with a hangover? Because a hangover is basically a severe state of dehydration. A healthy person already wakes up dehydrated on a normal day, and alcohol simply exacerbates this. B vitamins are water-soluble and thus are key to hydration and energy. You can reduce a hangover by consuming more electrolytes before bed and upon waking. Return to text. Any of these things can be a crutch for someone with chronic fatigue, but they should really get the chronic fatigue under control with proper nutrition and supplementation. Someone who is not getting energy from food and nutrients can easily rely on caffeine, sugar, or alcohol, and none of this is good, even though none of these things are strictly bad on their own. Even those energy medicines, like ginseng, ginkgo, or guarana, are not bad themselves, but it's bad when we rely on medicines instead of nutrients. When we have enough nutrients, we should not need medicines or any medicinal plants in high doses, except in emergencies. 
It is generally agreed that one to two servings of both alcohol and caffeine per day for an adult actually has a positive correlation with health and longevity. The primitive peoples that I keep referencing often consume more than the recommended limit of these substances, but they also have those extra sources of minerals discussed above, and they also eat real foods in reasonable quantities, among other good habits. The point in all of this is that energy should come naturally. Our body takes all food and turns the macronutrients into glucose to feed the cells, and we require at least 90 micronutrients to properly metabolize food and run our body machine, which includes having enough energy to make it through the day without a coffee or an energy drink. All of the things in this chapter will in some way increase our requirement for the water-soluble nutrients that we need to be hydrated. If we consume any of the things in this chapter, we need more water and water-soluble nutrients. If we do not rehydrate with water and electrolytes, then we are dehydrating ourselves. When we are dehydrated, we can crash into low blood sugar, or be driven to consume yet more of the alcohol or caffeine or energy drinks, or sugar, causing a vicious cycle where we are never adequately hydrated or adequately nourished. Water-soluble nutrients are very important, but when it comes to modern diet advice, they are definitely not the focus. Diets are mostly about which foods to eat and avoid, but hydration and electrolytes are equally or more important. Staying hydrated by consuming adequate water and electrolytes is key to our daily health, and the immediate effects of dehydration can be reversed as quickly as they can appear. Water-soluble nutrients are fast-acting, but in the next chapter we will dive into the other main category of nutrients, the slow, fatty nutrients. Chapter Keys Low blood sugar and dehydration are essentially the same thing. Hydration requires water and the correct proportion of water-soluble nutrients. Salt is the fastest way to top up on electrolytes. Sugar is water-soluble. Carbonated drinks do us no favors. If you must drink carbonated, keep it away from meals, at least one to two hours before or after eating. Sugar, caffeine, and alcohol all increase our immediate need for water and water-soluble nutrients because these things all dehydrate us. Sugar, caffeine, and alcohol are not categorically bad. All of these can be used in moderation. Use protein and minerals to curb sugar cravings. Water-soluble nutrients are fast-acting. The negative effects of dehydration happen quickly and can be alleviated quickly. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Chapter 7. Fatty Nutrients 
You might have noticed that I haven't recommended a diet, but at this point I can make recommendations that I hope will make sense. As mentioned, what you actually eat is not the important part of a healthy diet. A healthy diet has enough protein and fat and does not include foods that screw up the body. We don't expect food to have adequate micronutrients, so we do not count on them being in any diet. In my late teens and early 20s, I worked at a gym. If there were 100 people in the gym, I could count on there being roughly 100 different theories about what food and exercise strategy is optimal for perfect health. Everyone had slightly different ideas, and though there were general trends, many of these came and went as new fads came into fashion. I learned a few valuable things from this sample of people. First, I learned that fitness and health have practically nothing to do with each other. Some of the members were fit, but had health problems. Other people didn't have any noticeable health problems, but were not fit. A small minority were both fit and healthy. I saw some people diligently run on the treadmill or do other cardiovascular exercises every day for years, and yet failed to lose any weight. Sometimes these people actually gained weight over the years. So, things that worked for some people definitely did not work for others. Some of the fittest people I ever knew ended up with serious, life-changing injuries or diseases, essentially ending their bodybuilding hobby. Clearly, something was wrong, and clearly, exercise alone was not the key to health. A common phrase in the gym was that fitness was 90% diet and 10% exercise. Lifting weights without consuming adequate protein simply wouldn't build muscle, and running on a treadmill without lowering calories simply wouldn't result in weight loss. I still believe this rule of thumb is true, but we definitely didn't have all the details figured out. I mentioned in the introduction that I lived with chronic pain for the first 25 years of my life. I thought that building muscle would help me with this. I nearly doubled my body weight, from a very skinny 130 pounds, I'm 6 foot 2 inches, to nearly 260 pounds. I figured that since I had a muscle problem, growing my muscles would help that. It didn't. At all. In fact, I was in more pain than ever, more prone to injury, and according to my doctor, my overall health was turning from bad to very bad. On top of this, though I had never been a cheerful person, my mental health had plummeted into permanent darkness. I grew up eating the standard American diet, aka the SAD diet, which is basically junk food three or more times a day. Breakfast cereals, cheeseburgers, pizza, and so on. Luckily, I never really liked soda pop or beer. Maybe in part because I was physically fragile, I gravitated toward the bad kids and habits, which are mostly activities that aren't physically demanding, including smoking, tobacco and marijuana, drinking alcohol, and eventually using harder chemical drugs. I spray-painted without a mask and inhaled the fumes. I had unprotected sex and drove cars too fast. I played with guns and knives and yet none of this seemed to put me in more actual danger than getting fit in the gym. My pain was manageable until I started trying to do something about it. It didn't seem to make sense, but hopefully this chapter will make sense of it. Building muscle is mostly about exercise technique, consistency, and adequate protein intake. End note 43. I have made a video about the secret to muscle gain. On my YouTube, The Real Notice. The link is in the description for the YouTube and podcast versions of this recording. Return to text. This says absolutely nothing about micronutrients. Most people in the gym seem to believe that supplements weren't necessary. 
I also believed this, and I tried to get all of my protein from food instead of powders. I didn't take creatine or pre-workout supplements, and in terms of building muscle, this strategy worked. But pain is not caused by a lack of muscle. Muscles do need to eat, and so protein deficiency can be a painful problem, particularly in older people, but I was certainly not protein deficient. Footnote 21 Meal replacements can do wonders for older people who are not eating enough and are very frail as a result. People who have been doing chemotherapy for cancer tend to have their appetites reduced significantly, and so meal replacements can help them a lot too. If you use a meal replacement, make sure that it is gluten-free and contains no oils. We do sell some great ones on my site, wallexwarriors.ca. Return to text. In my time in the fitness world, most people seemed to believe in some variation of the Mediterranean diet. This was basically advocating a low-fat lifestyle. There are many reasons why this idea came into fashion, and there are many reasons why it is misleading or outright incorrect to believe that low-fat is key to health or fitness. Back in the early 2000s, the Mediterranean diet morphed into a diet that was not just low on fat, but practically absent of fat, no fat. The campaign against fat had been going on about as long as the campaign against smoking. Both campaigns started to become popular among lay people and researchers in about the 1950s, but gained serious traction in the 1960s onward. By the time I was in the gym, fat had become a well-known and supposedly well-established enemy. And most of us ate our chicken breast without bones or skin. My feeling back then was that this had much more to do with politics than health. Low-fat diets, and any diets for that matter, are a very modern invention. No hunter-gatherer or peasant population ever followed any diet. For the most part, they simply ate whatever was available to them. Sometimes they avoided some specific foods, such as pork. But this was always based on a religious or political philosophy, not a health principle. Footnote 22. Some religious books, like the Torah, claim to have health as a basis for some of their rules. Still, the adherence to any religious dietary rules is a political allegiance, in my opinion. Return to text. As new foods became available through exposure to other cultures, primitive people typically started eating these new foods too. This had horrible consequences for the essentially natural people all over the world who adopted modern foods like processed flours and sugars. One of my all-time favorite books is Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Weston A. Price. He documented the havoc that the introduction of these processed foods had on the people who had suddenly changed their native diets. Before the introduction of the processed foods, these people essentially had no noteworthy problems with disease or deformities. Weston Price was a dentist, and dental problems were his reason for investigating primitive cultures. He wanted to see if primitive people had problems with tooth decay. The degeneration he documented at length also showed strong connection with other health problems. To me, this makes perfect sense. The same nutrients that we are physically built from also work as metabolic cofactors for our daily functions. Physical problems nearly always correspond with some other obvious health problem. I would take this idea further and say that physical problems nearly always correspond with some psychological problems as well. Not only do physical problems cause us psychological stress, especially if we do not know what to do about them, but our brains and nervous systems are made from the same basic building materials as our teeth and bones, the essential nutrients. 
The same nutrients that Price was using to heal dental cavities are also involved in the brain, heart, liver, immune system, and a long list of other crucial functions. Price, and science in general, at that time, couldn't even identify all of these healing factors. Vitamin K was referred to as Activator X in Price's work. These key nutrients are fatty nutrients. It is easy to take this information too far and blame all modern health problems on the introduction of processed foods. We have already discussed some of the big problems with modern foods, but Price and others didn't recognize all of these. Price believed that we could still get all of the nutrients we required by eating real foods. Price conducted his work in the early 1900s, when soil deficiencies were just beginning to be recognized, though he did partially blame modern agricultural practices for contributing to modern diseases. Back then, and to this day, hardly anyone mentions the missing plant-derived minerals in the form of ash, or the missing bone minerals from the lack of culinary bone material. Nonetheless, Price introduced the idea of high-fat foods and diets being important for health, long before there was even a low-fat fad to argue with. When I was in the gym, I was hearing a new phrase being advocated, plant-based. In the 20th century, people who were environmentally conscious or health conscious invariably leaned toward a vegetarian lifestyle. Vegetarian is a rather ambiguous term because it does not completely outlaw animal products. Vegetarians could choose which animal products they preferred to abstain from. Some vegetarians ate chicken and eggs, some ate fish and other seafoods, but most of them stayed away from red meat. When I first started hearing about plant-based lifestyles in the early 21st century, the term seemed to mean mostly plants, but it quickly shifted into a new meaning, only plants. Suddenly it wasn't good enough to eat mostly plants, and those of us who cared about the environment and animal welfare were pressured into dropping all animal products completely. This is why I believe that the plant-based movement had more to do with politics than health. Environmentalism and animal welfare are political topics. Sometimes academics would make a case that a plant-based lifestyle was also good for our health, but this was very much a side thought, a footnote on the long list of reasons we were shown to give up animal products. In the decades during the Mediterranean diet dominance, the fad diets were practically all omnivorous. But as the years went on, more researchers and health advocates adopted the plant-based philosophy. Now it has practically become the default mainstream suggestion for dieting, much like the Mediterranean diet that preceded it. The Atkins diet, created by the cardiologist Robert Atkins, was promoted in the 1960s and had various levels of popularity before it really took off in the early 2000s. Atkins basically allowed for unlimited consumption of protein and fat, while emphasizing the reduction of carbohydrates, particularly processed carbohydrates. In the food chapter, we learned that the primary problems with our modern food system are most pronounced in this category, carbs, which often come from grains. In my time in the health business, I have met countless people who had tremendous success in losing weight and controlling blood sugar using the Atkins diet, and the reduction or elimination of processed carbs would be the main reason for that, in my opinion. Any diet that removes grains will have generally good results for blood sugar problems, losing weight, improving mood, and many other types of problems. And any diet that takes us away from the largely processed standard American diet will tend to show good results as well, particularly short term. Vegan or carnivore or anything in between that removes processed foods will have a lot of people swearing that it turned their health around, at least in the short term.
The missing component of all diets is the micronutrients. In the food chapter, we learned a few ways that natural people supplemented their soils and their foods. There is no diet on earth that could give us all the micronutrients without doing something extra. Modern people might not like the idea that we have to supplement our food, but all natural people did this, and I doubt the average westerner would be willing to put in the work of tilling fields and grinding bones and sweeping up the soot from a wood stove every day just to get the equivalent of a few dollars worth of nutritional minerals. After Atkins, Dr. Dean Ornish popularized a near-opposite diet, once again named after himself. The Ornish diet was basically Mediterranean, and basically vegetarian. It advocated fruits and vegetables, along with grains, and the elimination of animal fats. There were many other diets in these years, but Atkins and Ornish seemed to be the seeds of what turned into most of the trends we see now. Unfortunately, the Ornish diet is much closer to what is most popular these days, though the Atkins philosophy has seeded strong movements as well. What is now the popular ketogenic diet is basically the grandchild of the Atkins diet. The keto idea, which was first widely popularized by Atkins, is that the body uses fats much more efficiently than carbs. Carbs burn quickly, and therefore we need more of them to maintain our energy. Fats are metabolized slowly, and therefore offer longer, steadier energy for people who consume more fats and proteins than carbs and sugars. Think of the difference between throwing shredded paper on a fire and an oil furnace that releases drops of oil at a time. There is also more energy available in a fat than in a carb. Hence, people eating a lot of fat tend to need to eat less often, and less food in general. I am simplifying all of this greatly, but the point is that the 20th century had a much more modest approach to dieting than we do today in the 21st. Ornish did not completely outlaw fats. He just recommended plant fats over animal fats. And Atkins was strong on the point of proteins and fats being better than carbs and sugars, but he was hardly as extreme as the diets we see today. In my years in the health business, I have watched in partial amusement and partial bewilderment as vegetarianism became veganism and omnivorous diets became strict carnivore or keto. But the insistence of the general population in following these trends speaks to two facts. First, the general population obviously cares about their health and clearly wants to do something about it. There would be no reason for adopting a diet unless you were convinced there was a problem. Second, the continuing evolution of trendy diets speaks to what should be the obvious fact that none of them truly work. There would be no reason for changing your diet if your existing one was alleviating your problems. We would all still be following the Mediterranean diet if it actually provided everything we needed. Initially, I fell for the pulling of the heartstrings that told me about the cruelties of the animal industries, and I first tried vegetarianism for the purely political reason that I didn't want to contribute to the pain and suffering of innocent animals. I was also persuaded by the supposed connection to climate change, and so I believed that by eliminating meat I would be helping the environment. My switch to vegetarianism did not help my health at all. Though most people do feel better by switching from processed foods to a plant-based lifestyle, I definitely did not. I had never passed out from low blood sugar before I became vegetarian, but soon it started to happen frequently. Unfortunately, it took me a couple of years to figure this out, and my health was failing in a number of ways before turning it around. Though I wasn't healthy as a vegetarian, I was also financially poor at that time, and what was then still called the plant-based lifestyle fit my budget. 
Animal products are typically more expensive than plants, especially in Europe and Australia, where I lived during these years. I stayed vegetarian and simply accepted the idea that I would be in pain forever and would just have to deal with it. I was hungry all the time, so I simply ate more, and I was tired all the time, so I simply drank more coffee. Eventually I started dating a full-blown vegan girl, and I became one too. In her circle of friends, veganism was definitely a political lifestyle. It was a way to vote with your dollar, and not contribute to the evils of the world. She wasn't particularly healthy, and neither were her friends. We smoked tobacco and drank alcohol together, and mostly talked about politics. To say that I was infatuated with her would be putting it mildly, but my interest in her caused me to ignore the toll that this lifestyle was having on my health. I was in my early 20s, which was supposed to be the prime of my life, but I was frankly falling apart. My hair was falling out and turning grey, my skin was stiff and wrinkly, and my pain had gone from moderate yet chronic to near unbearable and constant. I had always had trouble getting to sleep and waking up, which is technically insomnia, but at this point I basically couldn't sleep at all. My short walk to the bus stop would cause excruciating pain in my shins, shin splints, and I started to walk with a limp. I was 24 years young and I considered buying a cane. I'm telling you this story in detail in part to explain why I have sympathy for those who choose to abstain from animals. I get it. I was persuaded by the same information, but I am far from the only person who experienced the disastrous effects of eliminating entire categories of food. My main problem with modern diets is this trend of identifying problems in food or food production and completely banning that whole category of food. You have seen that we do not outlaw grains. We have identified the worst of the group and abstained from those. We have also found the worst of the meats and eliminated those. We learned that potato skins were bad, but we did not completely eliminate potatoes from the menu. Even carbonated drinks, as problematic as they are, are not completely outlawed. We teach people to be aware of the problems and recommend keeping them away from meals. Many people go as far as to outlaw vegetables, mushrooms, seeds, and other plants because these plants produce antagonistic compounds called anti-nutrients. But, none of the longest-lived populations avoid nightshade vegetables or any other edible plant as long as it grows where they live. Further, many of these problematic compounds, like phytates, the stuff that makes a carrot or walnut hard, are reduced or eliminated by cooking. Finally, all of the foods with so-called anti-nutrients also have beneficial compounds. For example, tomatoes have an anti-nutrient called lectin, which is reduced or eliminated by cooking, and also many good nutrients, including a well-known and powerful antioxidant called lycopene. My vegan girlfriend was very serious about veganism. She called cheese the cheater's meat. Even honey was not allowed on our menu, because beekeeping was apparently cruel to bees. I felt bad about going behind her back, but eventually I had to listen to my body, which was begging me for eggs and cheese at minimum. At this time I worked in marine research, and there were two or three days each month that we would have to go out on a boat in the Sydney Harbour to collect water samples at specific points all over the water body. One of those days only allowed us to stop at a specific port for lunch. I always brought my own vegan lunch, but these days on the water were tough days, and when you work harder, you must eat and drink more than a normal day. My vegan lunch simply wasn't enough to sustain me on this particular route, and the port we would always stop at only had one vegan option, deep fried potatoes, otherwise known as french fries. 
I didn't know much about nutrition back then, but I knew that this was not a healthy option, regardless of whether it was vegan or not. As a vegan, I tried to eat all the colors of the rainbow, mostly in the form of vegetables, which was at least conceivably healthy. The port we stopped at was a high-end yacht club, and those fries were not cheap or healthy, and in any case I knew that they wouldn't give me much energy. I wasn't paying for the lunch, but I still don't like to waste other people's money. I was trying to be committed to veganism, but I had all of these justifications for allowing myself to eat meat on this one day at this one port. Instead of the fries, I allowed my colleague and captain of the boat to buy me a greasy, gourmet cheeseburger. Footnote 23. By the way, Australians seem to put pickled beets on practically everything, including burgers. If you haven't tried this, I highly recommend it. Return to text. I pretended to be reluctant, but by this point I was looking for reasons to cheat on veganism. I remember that burger like I remember the first time I had sex because the feeling was very similar to an orgasm. My brain was buzzing with a soothing satisfaction, and for the first time in what felt like forever, I was no longer hungry. My body had what it wanted, and from then on I looked forward to that one day each month where I could justify cheating on my political diet. For the rest of the month I would fantasize about that burger. Though those days on the water were physically exhausting, I would look forward to them primarily for that burger. More than once, I caught myself drooling over the thought of it. At this point, I knew that depriving myself of animal products was going against the will of my body. I started hiding cheese in the back of my refrigerator, and on the day that the vegan and I broke up, I went down the street and bought a large meat lover's pizza. I added eggs and cheese back into my regular diet, and very quickly my hair started coming back thick and brown. My pain did not go away, but overall I felt better, and most importantly, I stopped passing out. To be classified an essential nutrient means that our body cannot make it and we get a disease without it. Since we produce some of our own cholesterol, cholesterol is not strictly an essential nutrient like calcium or vitamin C. There are several compounds in meat, and red meat in particular, that I would consider essential, but won't make it on our official list of essential nutrients. Many people say meat heals, and I agree. I have had the opportunity to be with several people when they decided to eat red meat after a prolonged absence. Every one of these people reported an immediate good feeling in the body and brain. Several of them reported very fast improvement on mental health issues like anxiety and depression after adding red meat back into their diet. I consider red meat an essential food, and I have seen many cases where the person couldn't seem to get better until they added red meat. These are people who were already taking the 90 essential nutrients, but were still having some kind of skin, energy, weight, hormone, or mental health problem. I don't know if it's the heme iron, or blood iron, in the red meat, or some other special compound that makes red meat so powerful. Just because we can't explain it, doesn't mean it doesn't work. I assume there is some special combination of both proteins and fatty nutrients that make red meat so powerful, and that is why I am mentioning this in the fatty nutrient chapter. Red meat is a fatty food. All of this could be said about eating organs as well. Meat and organs showed up in the last chapter as having a bad calcium to phosphorus ratio, but that does not mean that these foods are bad. It means that we are supposed to consume those foods in proportion with the calcium group of minerals. The plain truth is that if you study primitive people or long-lived cultures, you will not find a vegan colony anywhere in the world. Veganism comes from the industrialized world, which is a world that has tried for over a hundred years to figure out why we are unhealthy and come up with solutions for our health problems. We have come up with pharmaceutical drugs and diet and exercise programs. 
None of these things come from the cultures who are naturally healthy. Some cultures do eat a lot of plants, but none of them completely abstain from animals. I should qualify this statement further. There is not one second-generation vegan colony anywhere on Earth, any time in history. This means a group of people who raise vegan children, who then go on to produce a second generation of vegan children. The original vegans are not the first generation, since they had to have adopted the vegan lifestyle later in life. Their children, raised vegan, are the first generation, and their grandchildren are the second. I have met many long-term vegans in my time in the health world, but none of them are second generation, and most of them had very obvious health problems. As strong-minded as anyone can be, there will probably never be a second-generation vegan colony, for a very logical reason. All of the sex hormones are derived from cholesterol. Cholesterol is itself a steroid hormone, cholesterol, and both male and female sex hormones are derived from cholesterol. Testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, pregnenolone, and several others that my word processor doesn't recognize, and you probably won't either, are products of cholesterol. Cholesterol can be thought of as the master steroid in the body, itself responsible for several essential processes in the body, and further responsible for creating other essential compounds such as the hormones above. Cholesterol is only found in animal products. There are plenty of monks and Jains, footnote 24, people who practice Jainism, a non-theistic religion that teaches salvation by perfection through successive lives and not harming living creatures. Return to text. There are plenty of monks and Jains and other individuals who adopt veganism and continue with it for the duration of their lives. But monks don't have to reproduce. People join a monastery, but they are not usually born there, which makes sense because celibacy tends to be a key part of these congregations. These groups rely on recruitment from the outside world to sustain their numbers, not sexual reproduction. Progesterone can be described as progestation. In other words, it is largely responsible for pregnancy, as well as other aspects of the female menstrual cycle. Without adequate cholesterol intake, reproduction simply isn't chemically possible. Going back to Weston Price's work, he described some of the mating rituals of primitive people, and in several cultures the female is isolated and literally fattened up before she is allowed to honeymoon with her new husband. End note 45. This practice is called leblau and the process of fattening young women can begin as early as age five. There is a French word, gavage, with a similar meaning, except it usually refers to force-feeding ducks or geese to produce fatty liver, which is considered a delicacy, called foie gras. Cultures that practice leblau are found in several African countries, such as Kenya, Mauritania, Niger, Nigeria, Uganda, South Africa, Sudan, and Tunisia. Practitioners are not only black Africans, but also Arabic or Berber nomads, as well as Jewish people. Return to text. Women were, and still are in some places, fattened up, largely with actual fat, but mostly just large quantities of whatever that culture eats. Sometimes this practice is taken as far as putting the young woman in a hut and feeding her until she is adequately plump. Those primitive people didn't know the chemistry but they figured out that fat had something to do with having healthy, eventless pregnancies and healthy childbirths and children as a result. A lot of people discuss this practice in terms of abuse, and it is true that the women are really not in control of this situation. Commentators also typically lament the fact that these cultures believe body fat to be an indicator of wealth and prestige, which is true, 
but it is also very obviously linked to a belief in improved fertility. We have all heard that childbirth was a dangerous endeavor in the early industrialized world, dangerous both for mother and baby. What you probably haven't heard is that this is still a huge problem in the modern industrialized world. The United States currently ranks 57th in maternal mortality. The U.S. has 19 mothers die for every 100,000 children born, and it shares this frequency with Romania, Oman, Moldova, Latvia, and Ukraine. Countries that do better at keeping mothers alive during childbirth include Tajikistan, Iran, Kazakhstan, and Turkmenistan. I'll bet that a substantial portion of Americans couldn't point out those countries on a map, and yet these backwoods nations do a better job of keeping mothers alive during childbirth. Though the world trend is still a decline in maternal mortality, the World Bank data show maternal mortality increasing in several countries, including the US, Germany, and Kuwait. These are some of the world's richest countries, but even oil money isn't buying a system of healthcare that reduces mothers dying during childbirth. And it's not just mothers. In 2018, a headline in many major publications was, Among 20 wealthy nations, U.S. child mortality ranks worst, study finds. I'm not picking on the U.S. for no reason. The U.S. spends more money on health care than all other nations, both in total expenditure and per capita expenditure. In 2020, total health expenditure in the U.S. exceeded $4 trillion. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development or OECD, is a multi-government economic organization with 38 member countries, including the U.S., and out of these 38 countries, the U.S. has the lowest life expectancy. Not only does the U.S. spend more money on health care than any other country, they also spend more on gym memberships, by far, they spend the most on supplements, and most of the diets we have all heard of were created and popularized in America. If we were paying attention to the statistics, we should be taking our diet advice from Turkmenistan instead of America. The point of this whole tangent is that modern theories clearly do not adequately explain what it means to be healthy. For at least a hundred years we have been told, mainly by American doctors and researchers, that diet and exercise are the missing component of our lifestyle. We are told that we are overweight and diabetic because of too much food and a lack of exercise. I am sure that not all of the 184 million gym memberships in America are actually used, and some people surely have a membership to more than one fitness club. But nonetheless, it is clear that by and large, we have taken the advice of our medical system. We have reduced our smoking, and more important to the current chapter, over at least the last three decades, we have dramatically reduced our dietary fat intake. Cholesterol is an animal fat. We humans produce some of our required cholesterol in our liver and the liver will produce more of it if our cholesterol intake in food is reduced. But this is not enough. In addition to the excessively important roles in the cell membrane and the sex hormones already mentioned, cholesterol is an essential part of many other systems in our bodies. All of our nerve fibers are coated in a material called myelin. Myelin is like the plastic insulation on electrical wires, and it is partly made of cholesterol. Obviously, electrical wires that are not insulated are a serious safety hazard and you can imagine the nervous system problems we could encounter if our bodies lacked the materials required to make nerve-insulating myelin. The defining characteristic of Alzheimer's disease is an unraveling of this myelin, demyelination. In the digestion chapter, we discuss the important roles of bile. Guess what bile is made from? Mostly cholesterol. 
In addition to the sex hormones, other cholesterol-derived hormones include cortisol and other adrenal hormones. Cortisol is a stress hormone, and we are largely taught that stress is bad, but stress is essential to life. The adrenal glands produce hormones that help regulate your metabolism, immune system, blood pressure, response to stress, and other essential functions. Without stress, we probably wouldn't do much of anything, or experience the full range of emotions and motivations for action. Similarly, the adrenal hormones are essential for energy. I could fill several more pages and probably a whole book about the many roles of cholesterol, but I think I have made my point that cholesterol is very important. I will only mention one more major role that will allow us to move on with the fat conversation. Without cholesterol in our skin, we could not make vitamin D from sunlight. Vitamin D is one of the four fat-soluble, or lipophilic, fat-loving vitamins. Vitamins are called vitamins because they are vital, which means essential. We get at least one disease if we are missing any of the vitamins. D, E, A, and K all have many important roles in the body which are not necessary to fully describe in this book. These fatty vitamins can be found in plant foods, but in general they are more abundant in animal products, particularly organs and eggs. Animal products are also the most reliable source, besides supplements, of the fat-soluble minerals, especially zinc and selenium. In the dehydration chapter, I said that calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, and many other minerals were examples of water-soluble electrolytes. This is true, but you will also find these and other essential minerals like copper and iron on a list of fat-soluble nutrients. This means that some nutrients function both in water and fat. This is because both water and fat are essential, and our tissues are made of both. The cell membrane is a largely fatty substance that keeps the cell itself waterproof. But both water-soluble and fat-soluble nutrients must enter and interact with all cells. The body can be very complicated, but the takeaway from all of this is that avoiding fat makes no sense. It is commonly said that the body is mostly water, and I myself say this because it is true. But that is like saying, on an atomic level, the brick wall is mostly empty space. The phrase might be technically true, but it does not help us understand how to build a wall. The body is mostly water but the fatty tissues and fatty nutrients are excessively important. When you eat fat that is not burned or oxidized or hydrogenated, you feed your fatty tissues. When you eat good fats, you support and promote the maintenance and repair of your brain, blood, heart, skin, reproductive and hormone system, and all soft tissues in the body like gums and intestines. In practically all systems in nature, water must be constantly replenished. Since we are mostly water, we are also constantly replenishing our water and water-soluble nutrients, which is why that chapter came first. This constant use and constant requirement means that we have an urgent daily need for a lot of water-soluble nutrients. Getting those nutrients on a daily basis is a major part of a healthy life. Fat-soluble nutrients have a much longer shelf life in the body. The energy we get from fat and protein lasts longer and is more consistent than the jolt and crash from carbs and sugar. Fatty nutrients can also generally be stored longer in the body. The fatty minerals and the omegas can become building blocks for tissues in the body. And the fatty nutrients in general have a strong status as key nutrients to boost when sick. Zinc and selenium and the other fatty nutrients are key parts of the immune system, and a regular doctor will possibly recommend zinc and vitamin D or E if you are sick. I don't know if my extreme simplifications are entirely accurate down here at the cellular level, 
but I have had to create many analogies to try to understand all of this myself. I like to think of the water-soluble nutrients powering us on a daily basis, like our car burns gasoline. These nutrients give us energy, and some of them also build us, like calcium. But generally these nutrients are used and disposed. The fatty nutrients are more complicated molecules, and in addition to serving as physical building blocks and reactive cofactors, fatty nutrients can also work for us in the body, especially in the immune system. I have largely left the omegas, essential fatty acids, out of the conversation, and they are also involved in numerous functions and are most reliably attained in an omnivorous diet. All of these nutrients can be found in both plants and animals, but avoiding an entire category of food makes this much more difficult to do. Every day people come to us with health problems that are in the category we call fatty problems. This does not mean that they are fat people. It means that they have a problem in a body system where fats are very important, particularly soft tissues like skin, lungs, gums, intestines, eyes, and so on, or problems connected to the hormone systems. Soft tissues are largely made of the fats. If there is a skin or a lung problem, we will first describe this as a fatty nutrient deficiency, or potentially an imbalance of these good fats. Imbalances are complicated and are not as common as outright deficiencies. Just like phosphorus and calcium need to be in balance, as do the omegas, these imbalances are not as much of a widespread problem as the calcium-phosphorus imbalance, and an omega imbalance can typically be corrected just by switching to an omega supplement with a different composition. In the digestion chapter, I mentioned that eczema or asthma is probably a digestive problem, because a digestive problem is the most common cause of deficiencies in fatty nutrients. Fatty nutrients are larger than water-soluble nutrients, and so any absorption problem in the intestines will affect these nutrients first, before the smaller particles like plant-derived minerals, which are much smaller. Everyone in the modern world will be deficient in some or many minerals if they are not supplementing, but regular real foods do have the fatty nutrients in them, and the average person is not severely deficient in fatty nutrients unless they have a digestive problem or are avoiding dietary fat. Hormone problems can include any female problem, such as painful menstruation, endometriosis, polycystic ovary syndrome, or an energy problem having to do with the adrenal hormones. We have probably all heard of adrenal fatigue, otherwise known as chronic fatigue, and though there are other factors that we will get to, the most likely cause of this is a deficiency in the fatty nutrient group. Cholesterol is probably the most important nutrient in this group, but cholesterol cannot do its job alone. It requires the other fatty nutrients. Hormone problems can also include mood and behavioral problems. In our view, mood swings have two main contributors, and neither of them are stress. The first is blood sugar fluctuations, and the second is a lack of the hormone-regulating and hormone-producing fatty nutrients, some of which were discussed above. Moodiness and irritability are basic symptoms of low blood sugar that we have all experienced, and anyone who is experiencing chronic fatigue due to a lack of energy-related nutrients and hormones is going to have a hard time being cheerful. At the beginning of the book, I mentioned a list of behavioral problems that we put in our blood sugar problem category. Bipolar or manic depressive can be easily understood as an emotional roller coaster that is on the track of rises and falls in blood sugar. Hyperactivity is essentially high blood sugar, while low blood sugar is basically depressive and irritable. Someone with a blood sugar problem can fall into either category. The same root problems cause both high and low blood sugar. I believe low blood sugar is simply a more modest deficiency than high blood sugar. 
My belief is that people with low blood sugar can easily become dependent on consuming sugar for mood and energy regulation. If this is done consistently, the blood can become saturated in sugar to the point where they are diagnosed with a high blood sugar problem, such as diabetes or obesity. They already had a deficiency, because low blood sugar is a symptom of nutrient deficiencies, and then eating more sugar exacerbates that deficiency further. Repeat this habit long enough and the person can have a serious high blood sugar problem like diabetes. They can become a sugar addict or alcoholic, which tends to come with all the symptoms that look exactly the same as high blood sugar, including a greater chance that they will be diabetic or obese. If a person with low blood sugar does not regulate this problem with sugar, then they can remain depressive, irritable, sluggish, tired, and physically cold, unless of course they achieve healthy blood sugar by consuming real food and essential nutrients in the proper proportions. The previous paragraph is my theory alone and it is more likely that the primary difference between low and high blood sugar is the degree of deficiency in the nutrients directly required to metabolize sugar and utilize insulin. More deficient people will have higher blood sugar, and most of the outright disease states connected to blood sugar problems are symptoms of high blood sugar. All of this explains why the keto diet has been promoted to improve mood problems, along with many of the other problems mentioned in this book, including blood sugar. The high protein and fat, Low-carbon sugar diet we call keto has been shown to be an effective, non-pharmacologic treatment for epilepsy and other seizure disorders, weight loss, migraines, and even Alzheimer's. It makes perfect sense that eating more of the stuff your nervous system is made of would help with nervous system problems like epilepsy and Alzheimer's. And since the ketogenic diet avoids grains and sugars, weight loss is very logical as well. Remember that we fatten up livestock with grains. Migraines, in our view, are caused by food antagonists, and the most likely ones are in grains. Footnote 25. By the way, you can find any foods that your body disagrees with, particularly those that cause migraines. The easiest way to do this yourself is with an elimination diet. You can search how to do this properly, but the gist is fasting for 24 to 48 hours and then reintroducing the suspected food without any other ingredients. If it causes a migraine, you have found the source and you can eliminate it. A more subtle clue that the body does not like the ingredient is to check your pulse before the food, during, directly after, and once more about an hour after. Write these numbers down, and if the pulse spikes significantly after eating the food, stop eating that food. If you follow the steps in the digestion chapter to improve digestion, try the pulse test again after a few months, and chances are the food is no longer a problem, if it was a non-grain food. Return to text. I am not fully advocating the keto diet, but in our daily business we recommend leaning toward the keto diet, in a way very similar to what Dr. Atkins wrote about a generation ago. This simply means replacing processed carbs and sugars with proteins and fats. I have tried the extreme version of the keto diet, which is no carbs, and I did not enjoy it. Now and then I cut out rice and potatoes, and it does feel quite good for a few days, and then my body gets hungry for my favorite snacks, which are dried dates or figs with salty butter, or rice with runny eggs. You do not need to eliminate carbs to lose weight or experience the many benefits of a keto-based lifestyle. Reducing carbs is sufficient to see results. Reducing portion size in general is key as well. Plant-based was a great philosophy, in my opinion before it turned to fully plant-based. Similarly, keto-based works very well for most people, 
whereas full keto seems to work only for a few. Many people report fairly significant problems after being on the keto diet for a few months or longer. Normally, minor complications are normal when switching any diet or supplement program. Some acne, constipation or diarrhea, headaches, irritability, and other minor symptoms are all possible for a few weeks or months with a new diet or program. The body has to adjust, and some weird things are possible. But complications with keto can be much more serious, with organs and glands in big trouble and worried doctors. Though we don't technically require grains or carbs on the chemical level, I do believe that moderate carbs are part of a balanced diet. I feel best with moderate carbs, moderate fat, and heavy protein. It is rare to have any of the complications above when switching to a moderate diet, like the one I propose here. The diet we recommend is just cutting out a handful of grains, oils, deep-fried foods, processed meat, baked potato skins, not burning meat, not drinking carbonation before a meal, and not eating a ton of sugar. There is only one person involved with our company who advocates a strict keto diet, Dr. Glenn Winkle. At the time of writing, Winkle has won 7 World and 20 Masters Cycling Championships. At nearly 66 years old, he shows no signs of slowing down, and is likely to win more cycling championships. Winkle is an incredibly intelligent person and a top-level athlete, and he has every right to believe that what he is doing is working. Obviously, it is working for him. But Winkle is a scientist, not a practitioner. He does coach other high-level athletes, but the average person is not an athlete. I have a ton of respect for him. But I know that keto does not work for everyone, and I do not believe the hardcore keto people who say that we just haven't done it long enough. Winkle has proven that keto can facilitate high performance, but other people have also proven that other diets facilitate bodybuilding and top-level athletics. There are vegan and carnivore bodybuilders and athletes, and without considering the long-term implications of these diets, we can safely conclude that fitness is possible on practically any diet. I was trained by Dr. Joel Wallach, among others, but it is primarily his advice and methods that I promote. He teaches what he calls the seafood diet, S-E-E instead of S-E-A. See it, eat it. This doesn't mean eat whatever you want, but it does mean learning what your body is asking for and eating those foods. You will have specific cravings and you should listen to those. If you crave potato chips, your body is asking you for fat and salt. Remember that in our view, all fats are good unless they are oxidized, so don't burn the meat or the butter or whatever cooking fat you are using. Protein should generally be the biggest component of your meals, but you also want to consume the fats that come with the meat. Eat the chicken skin and the jelly at the bottom of the roast. One of the trendy diets these days is the paleo diet, basically aiming to eat like a wild human would. One of the important points that they bring up is that wild meats are far leaner than the typical farm animal particularly those that are fed greens, and farmed meat therefore has a higher proportion of fat to protein than it otherwise would. Grass-fed and pasture-raised livestock are better for this reason. Physically active animals like kangaroo, wild fish, and deer are even better, in my opinion. There are other reasons why the standard farm animal is not as good to eat as a wild animal, such as potential antibiotics and other chemicals used to deal with the problems arising from stuffing animals together more tightly than a healthy animal should be, but the higher fat ratio is what we want to avoid most. This chapter is about fats, and fats are essential, but we don't want to eat too much of it. This is one reason why I don't like the keto diet. 
it takes the fats are good idea too far. And people trying to follow this diet tend to overemphasize fat without including enough protein and plants. This nuance is more than you need to know to simply get your blood sugar under control. The truth is that by simply replacing carbs and sugars with proteins and fats, keeping your portion sizes smaller, as well as topping up all of the micronutrients, you should have your blood sugar under control. Though we don't like GMO foods and pesticides, most of our customers do not go organic, and they still get their blood sugar under control. Both Dr. Wallach and I get some negative comments when we say that it is not necessary to go organic to be healthy. Theoretically and logically, organic food is much better, but we do not have hard science to back up this belief. I was too poor to afford organic food when I first got into health. I could barely afford dinner. I lived on rice and the cheapest meat I could find pork chops, and neither were ever organic. It took a long time to bring my income up to the point where I could justify organic ingredients. There are plenty of people who come to us for advice about their health problems, yet they are already eating the freshest, cleanest, organic foods available. The fact that they still have a health problem is proof that food is only part of the answer, and the GMO part of the food is not the most important part. Organic gluten will still ruin the intestines and organic steaks cooked more than medium rare will still cause too much free radical damage. I consider processed sugar an addiction, because the body is running on sugar instead of natural metabolization of nutrients. It tends to take about two weeks of complete abstinence from processed sugar to eliminate the addiction. This is another instance where dried fruits can be very useful. It is better to feed the addiction with a dried fruit than a candy bar, and this counts for alcoholics as well. Though I do think a candy bar is better than another beer, a handful of dried fruit is much better. Don't just switch from powdered sugar to syrup. Reduce the overall quantity as much as possible. I have already mentioned that sugar cravings can be mostly eliminated by giving your body protein and minerals instead of sugar. If you have a mineral supplement, especially one of ours, then you can take an extra dose of them when you have a sugar craving. But for the most part, eating protein that is salted to taste is sufficient to satisfy the craving. If you are thirsty, drink. Add a pinch or two of salt until you can barely taste it. For some reason, many health practitioners recommend avoiding water when eating, and to me this is lunacy. Imagine trying to wash your clothes or car without water. Your body needs water to facilitate digestion. When you are eating, your body should be asking you for water. It will not dilute the stomach acid. If you are using salt to taste, you will have sufficient stomach acid. You don't have to drink only water. We sell supplements that are meant to be taken with water. End note 60. Funny story. One time a customer called us, saying that he had been taking the products for a while, but didn't see any improvements. He told us that taking the products was also very unpleasant. Sometimes people don't like the taste of certain products, but this man really made it sound awful. Upon further questioning, we learned that he was eating the powders without putting them in water. He also said that he didn't drink much water. I thought that this was a strange occurrence that wouldn't happen again. But, a few years later we had another person tell us the same thing. We now clearly state that the products must be taken with fluids. Return to text. We sell supplements that are meant to be taken with water, and there are many healthy drinks that are not carbonated that you can drink anytime you want, including bone or vegetable broth, real whole milk, and real fruit or vegetable juices. I said real whole milk because I do not consider pasteurized, watered-down milk to be healthy. It's not necessarily bad, but it's definitely not worth the money to me. As far as I can remember, I have never in my life even purchased milk from a grocery store. 
We get fresh goat milk from a friend, and I recommend that you find a farmer or market near you where you can get real, whole dairy products. Or don't drink milk. Milk is only necessary for babies. Goat, camel, sheep, and animals other than the standard dairy cow tend to be much less problematic for people to consume. Fermented dairy like Amasai milk or kefir are also healthy choices that can be consumed anytime. Real milk of any type will also have a good dose of the fatty nutrients. Real fruit and vegetable juices are fine, but I would avoid anything sold in a grocery store. Part of this is because of the additives, especially processed sugar, but also dyes and other questionable ingredients. Another part of this is money. I mentioned that I was poor for a time in my life, and one of the strategies I lived by was to never buy liquids from a grocery or convenience store. It's simply not good value. I believe that both health and wealth are important for well-being, and wasting money is a sin to me. You can be healthy on a budget, and in any case, you can keep more of your money for whatever purposes. Even water from a store is a bad deal. I will buy a gallon of distilled water if I am on the road, and add a pinch of salt to it, but even the dollar per gallon is a rip-off, in my opinion. When I was poor, I saved up to buy a decent water filter, because even cheap water bottles added up to more than I cared to spend and I knew that bottled water had other problems, such as the chemical components of the plastic leaching into the water. To be clear, chemicals from plastics and cleaning products and so on are a concern, but they are far down on the list of things that matter for getting healthy and having healthy blood sugar. In the recommended reading section, I included a little book called Misconceptions About the Causes of Cancer, which goes into some of the detail about why the supposed link of all these chemicals from GMOs and deodorants and such is tenuous at best. There are clearly multiple other factors involved in making a human or mouse body unhealthy enough to develop cancer or some other serious disease state. Though I wanted to give you a lot of information in this book, some of this stuff is about optimization, and you do not need to be fully optimized just to have healthy blood sugar. Tap water is bad for a number of reasons, but it won't matter for your blood sugar. Chemicals from hairsprays and car brake cleaners will probably have some end result on your longevity, but it will have nothing to do with your blood sugar next week. Whether pasteurized or raw milk is better is a debatable topic, but you can consume either or neither, and it will have nothing to do with your blood sugar. A lot of what people are worried about are not major factors in health in general, or blood sugar specifically. Alright, that is the end of part two. Of course, make sure to check out part three. Remember, you can get this book on Amazon, and you can see it and all of my other books on my website, notusbooks.org. And of course, beyond this book, we have lots of episodes here on the podcast all about health. And that's it. I appreciate you. Until next time.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.